Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Heaven Up Here. Heaven Up Here is a name of an extraordinary book that came out a few years ago, and it details a certain missionary's mission experience in Bolivia in the early 1980s. The author of that book is John K. Williams, or John Kirk Williams on the cover. It's John K. Williams. But I am delighted tonight to have the author of this book on the program to talk about his book and other experiences he has had in the church after his mission. John Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Well, I want to tell the audience just a little bit about our relationship because I have actually known John virtually for a number of years now, probably over 10 years now, actually. But the way I know, I'm sorry, go ahead. At least, yeah. It's amazing how time flies. But uh, yeah, when I say virtually, I mean, I've never met John personally, but I have known him through certain internet message boards relating to Mormonism. Yep, yep, a long time ago that we we met. I think we were both uh, still on the other side. We were, and I think we've gone through a transition process, maybe at a similar point in time. Uh, The first time I think we met was on the former Mormon Apologetic Discussion Board, which was hosted by FAIR, now FAIR Mormon. Everything seems to be changing names. Uh, FAIR used to host this board, and then FAIR somehow got uh, disentangled from hosting the board, and they changed the name of it to the Mormon Dialogue and Discussions Board, which is a banner under which it now flies, and I think that's where I met you first. Yeah, I believe that's right, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Yes, and I posted there under the name Consigliere, and you posted there under the name, was it Runtu? Yeah, for a while until I got banned. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for those who don't know, Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board, formerly the MAD Board, that's what it is affectionately known as, the, the Mormon Apologetic and discussion board, what it used to be, the MAD board. Um, you had that is a board that is very pro-Mormon, I think, pro-apologetics, doing its best to defend the church, which explains its original connection with FAIR. But you were there, I was there, and at the time when we first joined, I think we were pretty much in the wagon of defending the church as best we could. Was that your perception of your involvement? Yeah, that's what I When I started there, yeah, I I can't even remember how I got sucked into that. But, yeah, I was still on the, um, you know, trying to to make some kind of rational case for my faith. And and I think you were, too. And and ironically, I think that being there kind of sped up the, the demise of my faith. Yeah, and I don't know if it sped mine up, but I think it certainly contributed to it. In what way do you think it impacted your faith, John? Well, I think the first thing for me was that, you know, I, I grew up being taught that anybody who um, opposed the church was some kind of evil person with bad intent. And I met people on that board that I, I thought, you know, these are just nice people who think differently than I do. And the more that I interacted with people, the more I realized that the the people that had questions or concerns, they were legitimate and 
despite all of the attacks and a sort of minimalizing of it uh, from the the faith promoting side, you know, you you couldn't really ask a an honest question without getting attacked for it. And I always thought that was very strange. And I don't know. I guess I just at well, I I know exactly how it happened, but that's I think how it contributed to um, my loss of faith was seeing that there's always two sides of the story and and sometimes the story that makes sense is the one that you don't want to make sense yeah i know what you're talking about because i went through a similar uh process uh at first i was kind of famous for posting bullseyes for the book of mormon or evidence that supported the book of mormon or the restoration do you remember that I do. I remember the bullseyes, and I, I remember, you know, no offense, but I remember chuckling at some of them and thinking, "Boy, that's a bullseye." <laughs> but you, you weren't know, impressed you, with all of my bullseyes. No, no, actually, I wasn't. <laughs> no, I hope you were impressed with at least some of them. Some of them, yes, yeah, yeah. But that's genuinely where I was coming from. I wasn't trying to make a show of something that I wasn't. That's where I was coming from, and like you. As I studied the church, even though I'm posting about bullseyes, I'm coming up with some questions that I have. And when I would pose those questions, I found that there were a number of strategies, which we're not going to go into right now in depth, but a number of strategies that the apologists, who I thought I was one of them, right? I was one of them. Right. But they end up coming with all of these strategies to avoid answering my question. There were diversions. There were distractions. There were um, ad hominem remarks about me. Yet, yeah. uh, if I'm even asking the question, that it must come from some place of bad intent on my part. Yeah, what I remember is that uh, you were, I, I think at the time you were teaching gospel doctrine or something. And I was. Four, this was from 2006 yeah. to 2010 to give it a time frame. Go ahead. Yeah, and and I remember that you would you asked a lot of really interesting questions, and I, I never thought they were particularly uh you know, they weren't things that would destroy someone's faith, but they were things that would require a little bit of nuance and thinking to get around. But I remember people started attacking you as some sort of showboating guy who couldn't stick to the manual and who, you know, was just trying to uh, spread propaganda through your gospel doctrine lessons. And again, I thought that was just ludicrous. Um, it and I, I saw the same thing happen to you that happened to me that, you know, once you start asking the wrong questions, people that previously were complimentary toward you all of a sudden turned on you and said you were something else. Yeah, something else indeed. And at this time and during this time, I started posting on another message board, which was Mormon Discussions message board at the time not to be confused with Mormon Discussions podcast, which is Bill Reel's podcast, but Mormon Discussions message boards, which, by the way, now has just renamed itself as Discussing Mormonism. Yeah, I, I heard that. Yeah, they, they reframed it. They restarted it. There were some technical issues they were having that they wanted to start it again with a different name. So it's now Discussing Mormonism. And I want to mention that to the audience once again. I did so in my last episode that went up a couple of days ago that if you want to go to a place where there are people posting who are extremely intelligent, extremely well-informed about Mormonism, that is a great place to go. But it is inhabited mostly 
by people who have left the church or who are critical of the church. And therefore, there's this love-hate relationship that existed between the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board with the apologists predominant, predominating and the um, now the Mormon or discussing Mormonism board where they're yeah. primarily critical people commenting. Yeah, I, I remember. I don't know if it, it, you were involved in this, but it was sometime around the mid to late 2000s that uh, they essentially, the, the, the MAD board, I like to call it, the Mormon Dialogue Board. Right, the they, Fair uh, Board, let's call it that. So the audience yeah. understands, that's the apologetic board. Right, and at, at one point, they just, anybody that was on their board that was also posting on the Mormon Discussions Board just automatically got banned. And, you know, one morning <laughs> you wake up and you can't you can't get in there anymore. And <clears throat> that affected me, and and I, I thought that was really interesting. That you know the the only reason they would ban you is that you you posted somewhere else that had a a lot uh, fewer restrictions on what you could say. Um, anyways, and then I think I went back and you know made a new account or something. And I, I think all told, I was probably banned four or five times from. <laughs> from the Mormon discussion board, a Mormon dialogue board. Right. Well, you got me beat because I was only banned three times. Well, I made some powerful enemies over there. <laughs> and let me just tell you, that's one of the things that surprised me because me, I can sort of understand why I got banned. Although I thought maybe there was a little bit of thin skin on the moderators part involved, but you, you, John, you were consistently from my point of view, the very nicest, most courteous, most thoughtful poster over there. You weren't poking sticks in anybody's eyes. You were just trying to understand things, trying to explain things, and being very nice about it. And so when you got banned, it was like, my gosh, if John gets banned, anybody's going to get banned. Well, you know, I, I think it was a couple of things that, you know, I had, I had said a few, I, I, I mentioned this the last time we talked that, um, I went through a fairly um, angry period where, you know, when, when, when your faith is falling apart and you're trying to, uh, you're trying to make sense of it, a lot of the people that you thought you could go to for help just, you know, are not at all helpful and, and very critical. And so I, I said a few unkind things in a, a few places that got back to some people over on that board. And so then, then it was well. You're just two faced, and you know the, the, trying to be reasonable and kind. Well, that's all just a big act. And I mean, I guess I understand it, but uh, I really have always tried to be kind and and reasonable and fair. Well, one of the things that really struck me during this process, what I'm posting on both boards, I'm posting on the Fair Mormon board, and I'm posting similar questions on the I'm going to call it the Discussing Mormonism board. <laughs> because that's what it's called now. But I'm posting similar things with similar questions. And to my surprise, what I am facing on the different boards are completely different and they're completely contradictory to what I would have expected, which is that over here on the Fair Mormon board, on the MAD board, where I'm posting these questions, I'm getting criticisms from some members, not all. I don't want to paint with a completely no. brush, brush. There's a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives. And a lot of them I really appreciate and still do to this day. But there were a number of very vocal conservative members over there 
on that board that actually told me that if I don't believe this or that, then I should just leave the church. They actually came out and invited me out of the church. Whereas I'm posting the similar questions on the critical board, the Discussing Mormonism board, and I've made a lot of relationships over there with people, including you, by this point. And what they're doing is they're trying to help me resolve my concerns so that I can stay in the church. So I've right. got the TBMs wanting me out of the church. I've got the ex-Mormons trying to help me stay in the church. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? Yeah, same same thing happened to me that, you know, I, I even after everything sort of fell apart, I thought I got to figure out some way to make this work because, you know, whatever it is, the LDS church is my spiritual home and I don't want to lose that. And yet when you went to people who, uh, on, like you said, on that one board, they were like, well, you know, if you can't accept X, Y, and Z, then you just need to leave. And, and, and of course I didn't. In fact, I, I never officially left. I still haven't. I still go to church with my wife. And, but, uh, you know, it was just very strange to me that, that I would be, like you said, invited to leave the church by ostensibly faithful members. Yeah, and I still, uh, I understand what you're saying about your feeling like the church is your spiritual home. Um, I certainly feel like I have been uh, spiritually thrust out in some ways by many members of the church, including members of that board. However, however, both you and I have served missions for the church. I went to Japan, you went to Bolivia, is that correct? Correct. And you ended up writing a memoir. By the way, before we get to the book, I just want to make the comment that going on a mission for two years was a very important growing experience in my life. I'm sure it was in yours. Absolutely. But it's also a way in which we get so invested in the church. We have sacrificed two years of our lives for the church. And we've paid for the privilege, by the way, right? Right. Yes, we don't get paid to go on a mission. It's not even a break-even situation. We have to pay to go on the mission for two years so that we can sacrifice two years of our life. It's part of what is understood in the LDS experience. But it's also such a commitment that there's such an investment there that once you come back, it is much more difficult, or at least it was for me, and it took a long time for me to come to the point of saying, I've invested so much in this church, I need to stay in this church. Because other, I mean, it's a sunk costs fallacy, right? That logical fallacy. Well, I think that that's that's by design, and that uh, you know, Joseph Smith said something about how uh, that a that the true church would require everything of you. That yeah, lectures on faith, a faith that does not require the sacrifice of everything is not a faith that is sufficient to get its members to heaven, I think, or something like that. Right. And, and I think that there, there's a, <clears throat> the lesson is that when you get people to, like you said, the sunk cost, when you, when people have invested so much, you know, it's not something that you just go, Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> you, you've invested your entire life and it's, it's your identity in a lot of ways. You know, you, you're a Mormon, you're, it's who you are and, and you're a return missionary and you've been to the temple and all, all of those things. And it's, it's very difficult to undo that and, and figure out, you know, is that me or is that just 
sort of enmeshed in who I am. Mm-hmm. And, well, not- and make Oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. I'm just trying yeah. to keep the discussion going without cutting you off. But go ahead and finish your sentence, please. Oh, I, um, it just seems to me that, you know, you, it's, it's impossible to, to just walk away and say that all of that stuff that I invested in is, you know, is meaningless. It's, it's even for people who do leave the church, it's still impossible to, um, and kind of unwrap that and and separate it from yourself. Yeah, I mean, I'm radio free Mormon, right? Right. It's still part of my identity, my nom de guerre. Right, right. Which I love, by the way. Well, thank you very, very much. By the way, I want to talk about your book now because I knew that this book had come out a number of years ago because I think you announced it probably on the message boards. And I never got it. Uh, I apologize. Well, uh, yes? Don't don't apologize. A lot of people didn't get it. <laughs> well, I was one of them. But more recently, we've been in contact by phone for the first time, actually. And we've actually yeah. talked to each other. We talked about the possibility of doing this interview. But before we did this interview, I wanted to get your book. And I wanted to read it for myself, which is one of the reasons it's taken so long to get this interview on the air. Because... Uh, It took me a while to read the book, not because the book itself is difficult to get through, but because I had so many other things that I was doing. But I did take this book with me on vacation here a few weeks ago. I had started it quite a while back, but I completed it on my vacation, and I finished it on November 11th, 2020, on Veterans Day, which is somewhat ironic, I guess, because, you know, being on a mission is not like fighting a war, not with real bullets and real people uh, getting killed by the enemy. But in a lot of ways, I think it is kind of like a military experience. Yeah, I I think people that uh, go on missions, it's sort of that band of brothers idea, at least for us. um, We we face so much, um, and people in Bolivia don't generally like Americans. Yeah. I had a couple of missionaries about three years after I went home, two missionaries were murdered there. Um, they, they don't like Americans. And we heard that every single day and the living conditions were pretty horrendous most of the time. And so all you have is each other and you really stick together. And um, yeah, I can see that it, it, yeah, it's not, not the same as going to war, but there is some similarity in that you stick together because you have to to survive. Yeah, yeah. Now, I went to Japan, which was not Bolivia. And by that, I mean, (laughs) by that, I mean, when I read your book, it brings back a lot of memories of my mission. And uh, I relive it through reading your memoir. But on the other hand, I look at what you went through and I went, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't go to Bolivia. (laughs) Yeah, one of my best friends, well, he and I, we did everything growing up together. He's three days younger than I am. And so we both were in the MTC at the same time. And he went to Finland and I went to Bolivia. And we would we wrote back and forth. And he said he, he just couldn't handle it. He couldn't have handled Bolivia because he, he couldn't have handled the, the living conditions. And, uh, and I said, well, you know what? I don't think I could have handled being in Finland where you don't 
actually do any teaching. You don't get into any doors. You, you know, you, you just don't do anything you would consider missionary work. You just, it's two years of futility. I said, that would drive me crazy. So I, I was glad that I went to Bolivia and not there. Well, I guess there's uh, positives either way you look at it. And I'm glad you're able to focus on the positive of it. Um, Can you describe to our audience a little bit about what it was like there? I know that there was a a huge amount of poverty, living conditions for the people, uh, very, very difficult. And missionaries uh, from the United States go into that situation. And all of a sudden, they're thrust into that same kind of living condition. Because basically, you live the same as the people around you. Is that correct? Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, Bolivia is the poorest country in South America, I think, by far. Uh, it's landlocked, so it doesn't have um, the kind of trade and uh, you know, international commerce that, that other countries do. And it's very poor. I mean, people, I, I think when I was there, the per capita income annually was like $700. Uh, and it was bad. And seven hundred dollars a year, a year, yeah. And so you know, a lot of the places that we we lived didn't have running water, didn't have um, sewers, didn't have some places didn't have electricity. Uh, it was I, before my mission. I, I met a guy in my in a German class at BYU who had just come home from from Bolivia. And he told me that if I just looked at it as two years of camping, I'd be fine. And, and he was right. <laughs> two, two years of camping. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that when you go camping, you don't expect to have any of the, you don't expect to have hot and cold running water. You don't expect to have electricity. Uh, you you expect to be cold and dirty. And, <laughs> and that was right. <laughs> Well, tell me a little bit about the food, because there's a number of places in the book where you mention the food and the ill effects it had on the different missionaries and which it had on you as well. Yeah, well, it's funny because there there is Bolivian food that I just really, really love. But the kind of that's the kind of food that you would get on a uh, special occasion like Christmas or something in Bolivia. But the day to day, we we used to say that you didn't have a a complete meal unless you had the four starch groups. Um, You had uh, potatoes, rice, noodles, and bread. And, and that was most of your diet was, was that it was mostly potatoes and rice and you'd get a little bit of meat and maybe a little bit of vegetables. And, but the big problem was just the, the uh, sanitation there that, you know, you could, you just got, you know, people don't wash their hands. They don't, the water isn't safe. And so every time you ate or drank something, you were putting yourself at risk. And yeah, I think everybody that went down there got at least, a couple of kinds of parasites. I know I did. And uh, at one point I, I lost, I was 114 pounds and I, I'm not very tall. I'm only five eight, but I was 114 pounds. And my companion who was five eleven, weighed 130. Mm. So we were pretty much, we looked like, you know, like concentration camp victims or something. They were really, really skinny 
and sick and yeah. And I think that affected everybody. Yeah, John, I want to read a passage from your book that deals with this, if you don't mind. Yeah. It's page 44 of your book. You can read along with me if you haven't have a copy. But here it is. It's this one paragraph which deals with the food. And this is pretty early on in your mission after you got to Bolivia. It says, for dinner, we walked over to the home of some church members. The husband, a small, slight man, even by Bolivian standards, was a school teacher. His wife, a rather large woman with intense eyes and brown teeth, brought in something I would eat at almost every meal for the next two years. She would boil beef bones and then top the thin, greasy broth with french fries. I noticed that her thumbs were in the soup as she carried the bowls, and I could see the black thumbprint on the inside of the bowl as I ate. But at least I was able to eat at this point. You're recovering, of course, from some sickness, and now you're able to eat. But at least I was able to eat at this point. The main course was a grim-looking stew made of tough meat and potatoes. I didn't eat much. I thought even if I was feeling well, I wouldn't find it very appetizing. Beck, that's your companion's name at the time, Beck, ate as if he hadn't eaten in a while. And suddenly, he winced and grabbed at his cheek. He pulled a rusty nail out of his mouth. How it got there, no one knew. It wasn't the last time, but you have a parenthetical note there, that a sister blamed the carniceria, which I think is the meat store, right? where they got yeah. the meat from, the carniceria, where she had purchased the meat. So she blames the store, but nobody knows how this nail got in this. Uh, no. But it ends up in your companion's mouth. It wasn't the last time we would find something in our food there. Rubber bands, paper clips, pieces of paper, and assorted pebbles showed up over the next couple of months. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the place. Well, um it was this we had the same meal every meal what the uh what we called french fry soup and it, i guess it was more of the cow's hooves instead of the cow's bones mm. but it was it was this clear liquid with french fries in it and then we would have this bowl of this just nasty stew we started calling it the dark, filthy, and loathsome stew, you know, <laughs> that, that scripture in the Book of Mormon. Yes. Uh, I mean, it was so bad. And, uh, and we, like I said, we were, we were just skin and bones. We were both very, very sick. And we finally decided that we needed to find um, another uh, cook, somebody that wasn't going to kill us. And so <laughs> we did. And what was funny was that I, I sent a manuscript to one of the people from that uh, Mormon dialogue board. Yes. And he ripped me up and down for that, for saying, he said that we, we heartlessly took away this woman's income because our delicate American tummies couldn't handle the food. Yes. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, you lose 30 pounds. And, and are sick every single day and tell me how, how smart it is to stay there. But, right. And so the audience can understand. This was very different from my mission in Japan where we just went out and shopped, you know, and we would make our meals for ourselves. We didn't eat at members very much. But because of the difference in the wages, you've got money coming in from America, from your families at home being put into your bank accounts. And the missionaries there, because of the difference in the standard of living, are hugely rich 
compared to yeah. the average person there in Bolivia. Is that correct? Uh, for most of the, my mission, that was true, yeah. And then they had a new government came in and they did some things to devalue their peso and and tie it to the dollar. And then suddenly we were we had no money. <laughs> but um, yeah, for most of my mission, it was we had more money than we could we could handle and so we, we had people cook for us and really it, it it you really couldn't have done it any other way because getting food is difficult there because you have to take a bus to the the market and then buy the food and you don't have a refrigerator and um so people go to the market every single day and that would have taken you know a couple hours every day out of our our mission schedule. So we just had paid somebody. I think we paid 40 or $50 a month to have somebody cook for us. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge benefit to them as well as being a benefit to you. Yeah. It's a huge, well, yeah. If the average, uh, well, I mean when they weren't cooking food that was killing you. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's funny because that lady that cooked that horrible stew for us, we said, you know, couldn't you make chicken for us sometime? She said, Oh no. Chicken is very hard to find in the market, and it's very expensive. And then somebody in, in the ward invited us over for dinner on a Sunday. So we went over there, and we had chicken. And I said, wow, where did you get this chicken? And she said, oh, just in the market. <laughs> and I, thought it was, I thought it was really hard to find. And she said, no. <laughs> and, and it was just that the lady that was cooking for us was doing it on the cheap, and we were paying for it, so we got really, really sick. And, and both of us had parasites, which was not fun. No, so finally you had to tell her, you're fired. Yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah, and you but felt bad about it too. I did. I felt terrible about it because I knew that they they needed the money, but, you know, we we just couldn't stay there anymore. But it, was, it would have killed us. Sure. Maybe. They need Literally. money. You need to not have nails in your stew. Right. Well, I'm not going to go too much more into the food, but I do want to mention this other passage on page 189 of your book. So this is much later on in your mission, but it seems like you were sick almost all the time in your mission. You go from one episode of being sick to another episode of being sick. So many of the other missionaries appear to be sick. Some even worse than you. Yeah, way worse. And this yeah, is... Go ahead. They did a they they did a, a a survey that showed that at any given time, uh, between sixty and seventy missionaries in our mission were were too sick to to go out and do missionary work, and so you had what about two hundred and ten missionaries total. So if you're too sick to go out, and then your can't companion can't go out. So it's basically half of the mission was unable to do missionary work at any given time because of illness. Wow. Uh, let me read this passage, and then I want to follow up on that comment. This is the last one. By the way, This I'm going to put out a little warning for my uh, listeners. This is going to be a trigger warning. If you get grossed out easily, or even not easily, this may turn your stomach a bit. I know it did mine when I read it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay, because you're just telling it like it is, and I appreciate that. Page 189, we slept on the floor that night, and I got violently ill with vomiting and diarrhea. 
I was groaning so loud, I woke up Danily, who felt my sweaty head and told me I was burning up with fever. I kept vomiting until there was nothing left to vomit. The dry heaves continued for a couple of hours until I felt something come up. I looked into the toilet and saw three or four worms, bright pink and about six inches long. Finally, I could sleep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to understand that our, in our mission, that was not uncommon. A lot of missionaries in our mission would take, take pictures of the worms that came out of them. <laughs> um, and it was a common topic of discussion at zone meetings, you know, what was the, what was going on with your bowel movements? And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't imagine any, that was common in too many other missions, but it wasn't ours. Yeah. I, I was really, really sick that night. And yeah, I will never forget that. Imagine if you were a missionary there today. I don't know. There, there are missionaries there today if they're doing the same thing, taking pictures and putting them up on Facebook. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would hope that conditions have improved somewhat. Um, you know, when I was there, at least particularly the first six months I was there, we were up in an area that was rapidly expanding and people you know, they, if there's a vacant plot of land, people would just build on it. And so there's no infrastructure. There's no plumbing. There's no sewers. There's no electricity. It just, the houses go up and then eventually they, you know, the, the government comes in and puts in the infrastructure, but there wasn't any then. So I'm hoping that since that time, a lot of the infrastructure has been put into place, but I, I don't know. Well, I've never been to Bolivia. I know that you have, but just so that our audience can understand if they have not been there, my understanding of the title Heaven Up Here has at least partially to do with the fact that you're way, way up there in altitude up in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. La Paz, the, the capital is about 12,000 feet above sea level. And where I was, was about 1,500 feet higher than that. So you know, 13,000 500 give or take um so you you get there and you it's bitterly cold and especially at night in the daytime though if it's sunny your face gets really sunburned because you're so close to the sun and the atmosphere is so thin mm -hmm. but every part every other part of you is freezing and and then at night it's just super cold but the eastern half of the country is all lowland jungle like the amazon basin and it's 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 a complete shock when you go from one part of the country to the other and you did that at the last part of your mission didn't you i did yeah i i had this wool suit that you know, it's the last thing you want when you go into the jungle so when i got to the jungle i i hung up the suit and i was there about four months and i never wore it and when I went to go home, I, I got it out of, my, out of my closet, and it was covered with mold. Made it home. Yeah, it, it was a bit. That was a big shock. Um, well, going back to your to your comment about the survey that was done that said around sixty to seventy percent of the missionaries were sick at any given time. See, when I read this book, you're giving me 
a view into what life was really like for missionaries in Bolivia. And this is right after I served my mission. I served in Japan from 79 to 81. You're just a couple years after that in Bolivia. But the deal is this. I was not in Bolivia. I'm in Japan. I'm with the main body of the church. And all we are hearing is glory stories about how the gospel is going forward in South America, how thousands of members are being baptized like on a daily basis that the day of the Lamanites has come and they're joining the church by the score. And many, many missionaries wanted to go to South America so that they could participate in that great missionary work. So all I'm hearing is all these great stories about how missionaries are triumphing over Satan in South America and baptizing people by the thousands. And yet now I see what was really going on there, at least with the missionaries. And I am thankful to God that I did not get called to Bolivia. Yeah, I mean, there was a ton of pressure to produce numbers in terms of teaching and baptizing. So we have this thing that our our mission president, this he was from Argentina, and he came up with this thing called the magic chalkboard. And every every P day, every Monday, we would have our zone meeting, and they'd write this big grid on the chalkboard, and you had to write down. Yeah, how many discussions you'd, you know, of the different kinds of discussions you'd given, how many door approaches you'd given, how many baptisms you had, etc. And then you had to write goals for the next week. And so it was, it was one of those things where you, um, you didn't want to go up there and put a big zero in the baptism column. And so you're having to do this on a chalkboard, the magic chalkboard in front of everybody else. Right, right. And then, then once a month, they had the, the mission uh, newsletter came out. Can and we go back to all... the missionary chalkboard? Oh, sure. Yeah. You said that you didn't want to go up there and write a zero. Well, what if the number really was zero? Were there missionaries who wrote something other than a zero? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I, I had one companion that would just, um, he didn't want to work. It was his last month. He was tired of it. So on our way to zone meeting, he'd just say, well, let's see, how many first dis- discussions sound good? Uh, how about 10? And he'd just make up the numbers. Um, and then we had people that just, you know, did some really underhanded things to actually get numbers. Like uh, there was one time I was the district leader and this, these guys came in and they put up on the magic chalkboard that they had 27 baptisms that week. And I, was, I thought, well, how did that happen? And turns out that their their building, their chapel, had a volleyball court outside, and there were a bunch of kids that were you know, like ten years old. They were out playing volleyball every day, and uh, the missionaries came up to them and said, "Are you guys? Are you kids members of the church?" And they said, "No." And they said, well, you can't use the volleyball court unless you get baptized. So 27 baptisms. Um, <laughs> that, that's how it worked. And, you know, our, our act, the activity rate down there is abysmal. It, it's like 10 or 11 percent. And it's these, because- these 10-year-old kids who were playing volleyball didn't stay members of the church? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, a huge shock, I know. But... <laughs> Well, it, we had people that, you know, I, I was a district leader and a zone leader, and 
people would bring in somebody to have an interview and and I'd I'd ask them the basic stuff. I'd say, Well, what do you know about Joseph Smith? And they would say, Who? <laughs> they had no, no idea what they were getting into. And a couple of times I, I would tell the missionaries, look, these these people aren't ready to get baptized. They don't they don't have any idea what they're getting into. So they would just go find the local branch president and and have that person approve it and they'd have their baptism and then those people would never show up again. And that happened over and over and over. I, I mentioned I was I was in one branch where we had over two hundred names on the records of the branch, but first week I was there, we had three people in sacrament meeting. Um you know, and a lot of the people that we we went and talked to didn't even realize that they joined a church. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember those the missionaries. They were very nice, and they, you know, they they brought us and put us in a pool of warm water. But they didn't really know. They didn't understand what that meant. And you know, they they a lot of people did it. I uh, I hate to say this, but a lot of it was that they they wanted to be nice and not hurt the missionaries' feelings, so they just you know got baptized and then and that was that, and then you never saw them again. Well, one of the things that I see going on here is this immense pressure to produce numbers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that we had this um, this newsletter that came out every month and. It had a page that where they listed every, com- every baptisms by companions, mm-hmm. and so there was the you know, and the top there was a thing in the middle that was called the Rocky Box, you know, like Rocky the the fighter, uh, and it was the the companionship that had the most baptisms, and then the following page was the zero page, and you did not want to be on the zero page for the month. And and it, it so like I said, it, it led to a bunch of underhanded things that should not have happened. And um, it was interesting when my mission president. So we got a new mission president, who he's a, he's one of my favorite people, great man. He came in and he said, uh, you know, we're not going to worry about baptism numbers anymore. We're just going to worry about. Um, converting the the missionaries and then everything else will follow and i thought well that's really great after all of this uh you know numbers pressure and um but about about six months in he um he went to a conference i think in lima and when he came back he said we're setting a mission goal for this month and he he said 600 baptisms this month and we normally had around 300 mm-hmm. and then and then a few months later the last month i was in the mission december he, he said we're going to have a thousand baptisms this month and the only thing i can think of is he must have gotten some pressure at that meeting because everything suddenly changed and i was out in the middle of the jungle when when that happened we were as far away from anybody as you could get we were probably 600 miles from the nearest missionaries and we didn't have a phone 
And my companion and I just said, you know, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to waste our time trying to get all these numbers. And they, the thing is, they almost got a thousand. They had, I think, nine hundred and sixty that month. But you know, how many of those people stayed active in the church? Probably not very many. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you that being a missionary and then being a district leader myself and then being a zone leader for a few months at the end of my mission, we always felt the pressure. The pressure is always there. You're having to write the weekly letters to the president, fill in the boxes. At least that's what we did. We didn't have a magic blackboard in our mission because that sounds super stressful and super coercive. But we did have to do the, the weekly letters. And when you're a district leader, then you've got to report up to the zone leaders. And when you're the zone leader, you have to report up to the mission assistants, to the president. So there's always this constant pressure to produce numbers. And if you can get baptisms, of course, that's the biggest and most important number. Who cares how many discussions you're doing if you're getting baptisms? But what never entered into my mind was that the same thing was going on at every level above me. And the mission yeah. president is under the pressure of reporting his baptisms for his mission to the general authority that's above him and the general authority that's above him and all these other missions in that area is responsible for reporting the baptisms from his area up to the member of the quorum of the 12 apostles who's over him. And so it's just this pressure cooker, excuse me, pressure cooker all the way up and the pressure starts from the top down and everybody yeah. needs to report baptisms. And so your mission president, the second one that you really loved and you thought was great, and he starts off with, we're going to focus on conversions and not on numbers, goes to Salt Lake City for a conference or wherever it is he went for the conference, comes back, and now all of a sudden, we're going to get 600 baptisms this month. Right. Yeah. It, and I don't know about you, but when I went on my mission, I had this idea that I was going to go out and and meet people who were, you know, hungry for the gospel. And I was going to see some mir- miraculous conversions. And and I did see that, you know, I, I honestly, I did. But I had, it, it just never occurred to me that there would be that kind of pressure to, um, to produce numbers. Uh, that always rubbed me the wrong way. And it ended up, it got so bad in South America that Elder Holland had to go down there for, I think a, a year or two, didn't he, in order to reorganize yeah. things? Yeah, it, it was apparently even worse in Chile than it was in Bolivia because he he disbanded 42 stakes, I think. As you, you would go into the churches in Bolivia, and, I'm, and I hear it was exactly the same in Chile, but you'd, you'd have a, a ward with a building, you know, a church building, and you go in and there'd be like 20 people in sacrament meeting. And at the place that I was uh, at where there were three people in sacrament meeting, a few months later, I was in the mission office and they told me, oh yeah, we're going to be building a chapel down there. <laughs> and I said, why? <laughs> For whom? Because there was, there was nobody to, you know, why, why build a chapel for three members? And, but I think that's the way it was down there. A lot of phantom branches and wards and stakes. And I mean, I'd, I hope it's improved. But the last I checked, the activity rate is still pretty awful down there. Right. But Elder Holland had to go down because it was so bad because of this condition that you're talking about with all these baptisms. You're doing volleyball baptisms, or some missionaries are, instead of baseball baptisms. But get him by hook or by crook into the water 
do this, right. do these reports and you've got all these phantom members who are members just because they got baptized for whatever reason, or maybe didn't even get baptized and they're being used to inflate the numbers because of the pressure. And now you've got all these members on the books who are really not showing up to church and never even went to church in the first place. Salt Lake City, everything looks great because, wow, we've got all these members. We'll, we'll fund the, the chapels for all these members that we are being told are being baptized. And so you got chapels with very few people showing up in them. And finally, finally, apparently, Salt Lake City gets wind of it and says, we got to go down there and do something and reorganize things. So they send Elder Holland down and he dissolves around 42 stakes, was it? Yeah. Yeah, and they sent uh, Elder Oaks to the Philippines for the same reason. Um, so same they were doing in the Philippines too. I've got to tell you this, okay? I've got to tell you. I hear, I hear stories. I hear stories from John DeLynn. I've heard stories from Philip McLemore. I've hear, hearing stories from you about this pervasive practice of missionaries, not all of them, but pervasive enough to cause these kind of problems of baptizing kids, young people uh, under false pretenses such as volleyball or baseball teams. And you got to be baptized to be a member of the, of the team. I've heard about it uh, in England as well. Right. So, but in my mission, in my mission, I was um, shielded from this because we were very by the book in my mission. That was Kobe, Japan mission. It split. I went to Kobe. I came back from Osaka, Japan. It split while I was there, but it's in the Kobe, Osaka, Japan area. And we were always very by the book. But then I start thinking how shielded I am, not only from your country or other countries, but even from things that were going on in different missions in my country, my country right. being Japan, where I was called to be on a mission. I'm talking about Japan there. And you told me something just a few days ago about some scandal regarding baptisms that was going on in Japan at the same time I was there that I had never heard of until you told me, and you said it involved uh, a mission president. I think you said it was in the South Tokyo mission, which was, you know, yeah. a ways away from where I was. And that uh, the mission president's name, I think, was, was it Groberg? Yes. Tell the audience about this. Well, so the, I mean, I, it's hard to do this justice, but what they did was they, um, the missionaries stopped knocking doors, stopped doing traditional missionary work, and they, instead relocated the missionaries to apartments that were right near like train and bus stations. Lots of train and, and bus stations in Japan and especially in Tokyo, I'm sure. Yeah. So then they would, they would go and talk to somebody at a train station or a bus station and say, Hey, you got a few minutes to talk to us. And then they take them back to their apartment and there were, you know, six or seven discussions. I don't, don't remember what they were when you were there, but anyways, they had it down where they did all of the discussions within 30 to 30 minutes to an hour. And at the end of the discussions, they would challenge them to get baptized. And if they said yes, they'd have their, their uh, leaders come over. Um, and they said they were always within 10 minutes of their, zone leaders it had them come over do the a quick interview and then they have a makeshift baptismal font in the elders apartment and and they would they had it down from first discussion to baptism within an hour and a half and then oh they would send them, then they would send them on their way and and you said something about they had that, that because of course they have to have their interview 
before they're baptized. And that has to usually be done by a zone leader, right? Right. And so they have a zone leader that's on call, basically anytime run yep. over here and do this interview and then we'll baptize them. So you're taking the six missionary discussions. Let's say it's six. It might've been seven. And each of those discussions is supposed to be roughly an hour. And right. of course you space those out over as many days. You usually don't teach, you know, two discussions on the same day even because you got to have, right. there's assignments, things to read. Um, it, to attend church is a big thing, right? Usually you got to attend church at least once before you're baptized. At least that's the way it was in my mission. I think that's the way yeah. it is. But they are taking an hour discussion and they're basically collapsing it into like 10 minutes yeah. and then doing them all back to back in an hour. Okay. We've, we've got a baptismal challenge. They accepted, get on the line to the zone leader, get over here fast. We got a live one and then do the uh, interview, approve them for baptism. And you got the baptismal font there, the makeshift one in the missionary's apartment and you baptize them and boom, you've got another number. Yeah, I mean, it made us look like amateurs. <laughs> this is down I, to I a science. Well, it's that I, I had written something about the, the numbers pressure in my mission, and then somebody asked me, do you know about the, the Tokyo South thing? And I said, no, I'd never heard of it. So I looked it up, and uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I still can't believe they did that. But, but it, it's just... Like you said, it's it's the result of a, a system that has pressure from all levels to to perform numbers, and I mean, I, again, I I hope that that's changed. Uh, certainly, I don't think it could have gotten any worse than that. Um, but you know, I I still I, I can't I can't fathom how we ever got into that position of, you know, who cares whether you actually convert somebody, uh, but just get them in the water. And right. Because obviously the conversion is the important thing. The baptism is important, but it's secondary to it. It's the natural uh, conclusion of a conversion process, which you as the missionary have been instrumental in leading a person through. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful that I had a number of those experiences where you know we did everything by the book and the people genuinely were converted and wanted to join the church that you know if I had spent 2 years just you know baptizing kids who were playing volleyball I, I would have you know I would still regret that today and you know I never I never did that kind of stuff um and not to say that it wasn't tempting, but I just, you know, we, we set our goals. I, I, I know we baptized some people that I really wasn't very comfortable baptizing, but, you know, I got overruled. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I'm glad I had the good experiences. And I, I think that's the thing to remember for me about my book is that, you know, I, I've been, I've had people say, Oh, all you're doing is complaining. And I said, no, I, I just wrote what happened, good, bad, and everything in between. I just wanted to, I wanted to write it all out. And, and it, there was a lot of good. And like you said, much of who we are as adults, uh, we got from our mission. 
Yes. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about that too, getting back to your book. I had not read the book before I got it. I guess that makes sense. But before I got it, I went online to order from Amazon and I wanted to read the reviews of your book because frankly, I'm thinking, I don't know you. I'm sure you tried to do your best with this book, but I'm not expecting a lot. Okay. But I'm reading, yeah. these, I'm reading these reviews and they are uniformly glowing. John, and it's not just about people saying, oh, it's built my testimony. This is so faith promoting or all this stuff. It was people looking at it and saying, it's very balanced. It's in a narrative fashion. It's not trying to promote Mormonism. It's not trying to denigrate Mormonism. What it's trying to do is simply give a blow by blow description of all these different incidents and components and stories from your mission without trying to draw a moral one way or another. And the review said that you did it wonderfully well. And I thought, wow, maybe I'm actually going to read a book I'm going to enjoy, not one that I just have to read, you know, because I want to interview this fellow that I met on the internet a decade or so ago. But I read this book and I agreed with them. I thought it was very, very well written because it is descriptive about what happened and you don't try and draw direct morals from it. You don't bash the church. You don't bash the mission. You don't say how wonderful it was and that this proves the church is true. You just let it all out there. The good, the bad, the ugly. That was the name of a recent podcast, but you know, everything. And you have good in there too. You have bad in there too. And you just have uh, everything in there without trying to uh, spin it one way or another. At least that was my take and the take of these other reviewers. That was your goal, wasn't it? Yeah, well, the way it all came out is I used to have a blog a long time ago, and uh, I was telling a friend of mine that story that that opens the book where we were walking across a bridge in La Paz, and we thought there was a dead body on the bridge. And uh, I was telling him this story, and he said, you should write that down. And I did, and I started writing, and I couldn't stop. And I wrote every night for a couple hours for about five weeks until I had it all out. And, uh, and, and I realized at that point that, you know, it had been 25 years and um, all that time I had, I had sort of self-censored. I had only allowed myself to talk about or think about the stuff that was, uh, faith promoting, I guess you could say. And even you could talk about the bad stuff, but always in the context of this is what I had to overcome. Um, and I realized I just had never, I'd never expressed what, what that mission experience was like in its entirety. And so I, I wrote it all out. I, I wrote it in sections on my blog. And then a couple of friends said, you know, you really ought to write a book about this. So I took all that stuff and I spent about six months editing it. And I made a decision when I was writing that I wasn't going to editorialize. I wasn't going to be pro or anti anything. I was just going to write it as it happened and try to remember what I was thinking and feeling as a 19 year old kid. And uh, I actually had a publisher tell me that they would publish it if I went in and made it anti-mission. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So I'm really happy with the way it turned out because I've had people, you know, ex-Mormons, active Mormons, people from my mission, people who are never Mormons, 
uh, all of whom have said they really enjoyed reading my book. And so I think I succeeded in what I wanted to do in that I just told the story and I trust readers to make up their own mind about what to think about it. Can I tell you some of the things I thought about it and get your take on it? Sure. All right. So reading through a number of your, reading through the entire book and the stories in it, there are a number of stories that present themes to me. There are similarities in a number of the stories. And one of the things that I saw was a number of instances where, by the way, you're in the mission home too uh, for a number of months in your mission. So you have a lot of important uh, responsibilities to do with uh, picking up missionaries, arranging for transportation, arranging for passports too, correct? Right. Well, what I see in here, and I don't know if I can find the references very quickly, though they are underlined in my copy, is that there's at least three instances and maybe four where you start lying. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where you start lying for the church. And I think one of them has to do with um, uh, some mother of a missionary calling in and saying, hey, where's my missionary? Uh, I, I can't find him or something. And you say, oh, he's fine. He's fine. When you actually know that he sort of disappeared and gone off the map for a while, you don't know where he is, but you're hoping for the best. But at the same time, you know that you don't want to say that to this mother and worry her. So you're going to make a false presentation of positivity to comfort her. But then you also say, "Eh, I felt kind of bad. I don't know if you even say you felt kind of bad about it, but I got the impression that you really didn't like doing that, but you did it because it's for the greater good. Well, what happened was we had, they had an attempted coup. And so there were tanks in the streets and 10,000 miners with dynamite surrounding downtown La Paz (laughs) and everything shut down. So you, the phones didn't work. The airlines weren't working, you know, because there's only one union in in Bolivia. When they go on strike, everything shuts down. So we we couldn't call La Paz. We couldn't find out what was going on up there. We just hoped and prayed that the missionaries were smart enough to stay inside during all the turmoil. And we were at the mission office late one night. My companion was the um, financial secretary. And so he was doing his monthly numbers and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was a lady calling from New Hampshire saying that she'd seen all this on the news and was really worried about her son. I mean, I still haven't figured out how she got a phone call through, but she did. Um, And I knew where he was. He was in my first area, which is about as far from the action as you could get. So I didn't feel too bad about lying to her and saying, oh, no, everything's fine. I I didn't want to tell her, no, we we really haven't heard anything from anybody for about two weeks. Uh, I mean, I just didn't. I I would do it again today because all it would have done was have a panicked mother in New Hampshire. And as it turned out, it was exactly what I thought. He was in that area where there weren't any problems and nothing happened. But the the bigger thing was that I I started lying to my family. I, I lied to them all the time and told them I was fine. I wasn't sick. And, and my dad has told me many times that, that's the one thing he'll never forgive me for is lying to, to him when I was on my mission and not, to, not being honest about you know, what, what was going on with me physically. Um, and that, that does make me feel bad. But I, I think that, I, again, it goes back to that 
you you don't want to share the stuff that's negative with people. Uh, you want your letters home to be relentlessly positive, and you know you you just don't want to admit that sometimes things are terrible. Yeah, there's a couple of instances I found while you were talking in your book. There's one in chapter 25 where these are very just small offhand comments you make, but they caught my eye as part of this pattern. Um, you are at some kind of meeting. I think you're with the president. Uh, and you say, I don't want to have a leadership position. That's what you say. Yeah. And then you say, <laughs> I don't want to have a leadership position, I said. And as soon as it came out, I knew it was a lie. Part of me really <laughs> wanted to be a leader, as only the best missionaries were assigned as leaders. I mean, how many Mormons, how many, especially guys, because, you know, we're the ones who can be the leaders, right? But how many Mormons say, I don't want to be a leader because we're told we're not supposed to aspire to leadership, right? right. But on the other hand, that is a sign of uh, promotion. It's a sign of success. Uh, it's a thing that other people look up to. It's a thing that's designed to be desired, and yet we're not supposed to desire it. And so we say we don't desire it, while at the time we actually do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I look back that, at that and I just think that that was just so strange. You know, I, I mean, there was a part of me that just did want to just be a missionary, but part of me that wanted that sort of seal of, of approval. And uh, but I went with the, you know, humble missionary. Uh, just, you know, just don't want to be a leader. I just want to go out and serve as best I can as a normal missionary. And, you know, later on, I was his own leader, so it all worked out. Yeah, you made it anyway, even being humble. Yeah, that's right. And then you go on in that same paragraph, but I knew it was wrong to aspire to a position. So I repeated, please tell President Nichols that I just want to be a missionary and not a leader. And there I made a note, Mormonism makes liars of us all. Yeah, well, I, I think I mentioned to you, one of, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was this unwritten rule that you you don't talk about um, anything that isn't faith promoting and uh, a good friend of mine who was in Bolivia with me he um he went home and his his bishop asked him to give a presentation to the priest quorum about his experiences in Bolivia so he was fairly brutally honest and he said you know you have to be prepared for people that don't like Americans and uh, places where the living conditions are bad. And, and then he said, after his presentation, the bishop, he said, the, the guy's face was actually red, grabbed him by the collar and hauled him into the bishop's office and yelled at him for discouraging the, the, mission, the prospective missionaries. And he said, after that, he just never talked about his mission anymore. And, and it's weird. I I don't think there's any any law. You know, it's never written down. Don't don't ever talk about the the bad stuff. But we don't, and we lie. And you know, I I lied to my parents. I lied to my mission president. I lied to people when I told them about my experiences. And it took me 25 years to finally say, you know, I'm just gonna tell all of it. And and then what's really funny is that I, I did an interview in a Salt Lake City Weekly paper, and, and I was just talking about that unwritten law. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I come across in, in, my mission, in my book as whining and complaining, but 
that no, was I'll, the, I'll tell you right now, you don't. Go ahead. That was that was the Aki's on the comments from that article. It was like, oh, he's just a pussy. He can't handle anything, and he's just complaining and blaming all his problems on the church. And I thought, um, no, but but that's that's because of that unwritten rule that you know if if you don't if you're not relentlessly positive, then you're some kind of complainer and yeah yeah you're never supposed to say anything negative about the church about the gospel about the leaders about your mission about your experiences in the church nothing like that because i agree with you and i experienced the same thing i've never heard it directly but it's inbuilt into the culture which is the only thing you say is positive stuff because that's all that we are permitted to say that's the only thing that will be acceptable for us to say. And as soon as we say anything negative, going back to the message boards, right? As soon as you start asking any questions even about things, then all of a sudden you become the enemy and you need to be shunned. If you're not going to correct yourself, then you need to be distanced and marginalized from the herd. Yep. Well, and I think one of the, one of the problems with that is that, well, there's a lot of problems with, but you, you start thinking that, you know, since everyone is relentlessly positive, you think that, you know, it, you're in your ward in, in sacrament meeting, you think, I'm the only person in here who's struggling mm-hmm. because everyone else is telling me how great life is. And then you get into a leadership position. You know, I've, I've been in leadership positions and you start hearing what, what's really going on under the surface and everybody's got problems but nobody talks about them except when they go talk to the bishop. And then, then that's all confidential, except it, it gets out in leadership meetings. <laughs> but, right. but you, you think that it's just you, you think I'm struggling or I'm not happy or uh, I've got lots of problems. You think, oh, well, it's just you suck it up. And um, you know, that I was sort of raised with the idea that, that uh, happiness meant keeping the commandments, that if you were happy, if you were keeping the commandments, it meant you were happy. And so... And therefore... Yeah, but if you weren't happy, it it was either that you you were doing something wrong or you just needed to suck it up and stop, stop whining and... No, exactly. If you, if you keep the commandments, you will be happy. That's from the happiness letter, right? Happiness right. is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we but follow the path that leads to it. And that path is blah, 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 blah. And keeping all the commandments of God. That's by Joseph Smith. Right. Very famous uh, passage in the church. Uh, I won't go into the happiness letter here. Others have done that. But yeah. So if keeping the commandments will make us happy, then if we are not happy, then we must not be keeping the commandments. There must be something wrong with us. We're not doing something Right. And therefore, it ends up becoming this uh, downward cycle, this negative circle, a vicious circle of uh, going down. We're not happy because we're not keeping the commandments. Well, what commandments am I not keeping? Because I'm sure trying to do as best I can. I can't really pinpoint anything. I think I'm doing everything. But we start it starts generating almost a self-loathing. Yeah. Well, I I don't know if I told you this, but you remember the. What's her? I can't remember her name. The one who uh, was uh, abused by the mission, the MTC president. Oh, yeah. Yeah. McKenna Denson. You know, she went into the MTC the same day I did. And that's January of 1980. 
four. four. Yeah. Right. And what's funny is, you know, I, I had uh, I'd gone to a therapist in, in Provo once and uh, and I had been talking about how I struggled my whole life with feelings of guilt and inadequacy. And she said, well, tell me one time when you um, when you felt the most guilt. And I, I said, well, it's the MTC. They kept the the president of the MTC kept hammering us over and over and over that we needed to find dig deep within ourselves and find out what we haven't repented of. Otherwise we can't be effective missionaries. And I remember scouring my memory. What did I, what have I not repented of? And, and, and just feeling guilty, not for anything specific, but because I couldn't remember anything. And, (laughs) and you can't win for losing. No, so I, I said that to this therapist, and she said, well, my husband and I work in the MTC, and we have never heard anything like that. And, and I thought, and she said, well, it's just you, you know, it's you um, inventing reasons to feel guilty. And, and then when that stuff came out from the, um, about the abuse in the MTC, some of the things that she mentioned were this this huge, exactly what I said, that this pounding on us to, to repent of things, especially it was one of the big ones was masturbation. And, you know, if you, if you haven't repented of these things, then you're not going to have the spirit and you're not going to be a good missionary. And she, she basically confirmed exactly what I had said. So I, it made me feel a lot better because the therapist made me think I was crazy or something. Yeah. Good job. Therapist. You're making yeah. your clients crazy. And I, and I, well, I only went to her once because I thought, you know, she's unable to separate anything. Uh, she's unable to separate me from her or her role as therapist from her membership in the church. And it, it wasn't a good, good fit. Let me tell you this about uh, McKenna Denson, because just a bit of background yeah. is that McKenna Denson uh, went to the MTC, a sister missionary, in January of 1984. Coincidentally, even though you didn't know her, I understand. No, uh, no. You entered, the, you entered the MTC on the same day that she entered the MTC. Pre- Joseph Bishop is the name of the man who is the president of the MTC. And regardless of what did or did not happen between him and McKenna Denson, though it looks like something kind of uh, sketchy did happen, um, he admitted to having improper physical contact and probably social contact as well, but also up to including and including physical contact with some of the sister missionaries under him, no pun intended, while he was (laughs) the president of the MTC. And... uh, so he's admitted to that. He is the president of the MTC. He was doing this stuff at the time, self-admitted. And yet he's the one who's pounding on the missionaries at the MTC about masturbation. And one of the things that McKenna Denson had told me was that she remembered that he would tell this, this story to the, the missionaries combined in the assemblies about how there were all these uh, dark forces arrayed around the MTC. And the only thing that was keeping these dark forces from invading the precincts of the the MTC was this band of angels that was protecting the MTC. And that if missionaries were masturbating or doing anything that they shouldn't do, 
that that would cause like a chink in the wall of the angels and it would allow these dark forces to come in. So it was yeah. up to the missionaries to not be doing anything they weren't supposed to be doing. Meanwhile, President Bishop is doing all the things that he's doing. And But the missionaries are supposed to be super pure and righteous. So as I guess to help the angels out, to protect the MTC from these dark forces. So she had told me that, and that's why when I read your book on page 28 about the MTC, and you're talking about the president, you don't mention his name, but you say the story, which certainly caught my eye, which is you said, um, by the time I arrived at the MTC, legends were circulating about missionaries who had received miraculous protection from Satan's power. One story in particular I heard from the pulpit. A leader at the MTC had been shown in vision the dark forces arrayed against missionary work, but he had seen an army of angels in white surrounding the MTC to protect it. He warned us, however, that soon we would be outside the MTC and our only protection would be our own righteousness. Yep. So whatever you think of her and whatever happened, uh, pretty much everything that, that I can verify that from my experience is exactly like hers was in the MTC. Now, obviously I wasn't, I didn't have any contact with the mission president, um, but it was cute that, enough, John. Yeah. It was just that a weird environment. And I look back on it now and well, I, I obviously thought it was weird enough to write about it. <laughs> yeah. It stuck with you because yeah. this is dramatic. This is a peril that you're in. This is your protection, your spiritual protection, depending upon your righteousness. Yeah. And like I said, I, I, he, they pounded on it so much that I was, I was starting to not invent things to feel guilty about. But like I said, I was, I felt guilty that there had to be something that I hadn't repented of that I'd forgotten about. And I mean, it's just, it sounds insane to me today. So Right, but you're not happy, and so there must be something that you did that you've forgotten about that you didn't repent of, because if you had, you'd be happy. Right, right. Yeah. I'm not a therapist, but can I say this sounds a little unhealthy? Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> well, well I, one of the, I think one of the things that has stuck with me the most from my mission is, and I, I, I wrote about it, where we were we had a, a, a general authority come to visit and I was there two years and only saw one general authority. You know, they basically, they did not want to go to Bolivia, but this, this they were general, all coming to Japan. I can tell you that I saw a bunch yeah. of them, but this, uh, this general authority came down and my companion and I were both sick and, but we did not want to miss this, uh, his, talking to the zone conference so we got out of our sick bed and went down to the stake center and and we got yelled at for about 45 minutes he, he literally yelled at us and said we were lazy and uncommitted and and uh not keeping the rules and blah 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 and and then we went home that night and at first we were like, you know, how could he say that? He doesn't know anything about us. And then within maybe 20 minutes, we had talked ourselves into, oh, I guess he's right. Maybe we aren't working hard enough. And I sort of internalized at that point that no matter what I did, because I was, I was given everything. I was working my butt off. 
but I sort of internalized this belief that didn't matter how much I gave, how hard I worked, it was never going to be enough. And, and I carried with that with me for years and years and years. That is something that I suffer from. And I can't yeah. tell you that it's because of my experience with Mormonism. Uh, maybe I would be, be, be that way uh, without that. But I can guarantee you that it didn't help. No, no. Because I feel the same way that no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I do, it's never good enough. And it's not a healthy mindset no. to have. No. Yeah, the, I remember... President Kimball saying the the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. Yeah. And <laughs> it goes right along with that. I just, I never felt good enough. Never. Lengthen and your stride. Took me years of therapy to get over it. Yep. And we set impossible goals and you're still not over it. I'm sorry. I talked no. over you. No, it's, it's still there. I'd, I'd always will be, I think. Yeah. But at least I'm conscious of it. And we set, and we set, I'm, by which I mean the mission president set impossible goals for us to meet so that we can never actually feel like we accomplished it. Yeah. Yep. Let me go to a number of other stories that have a similar theme, and then we'll move on to your life and, and working for the church in the curriculum okay. department. Okay. But we're, we are an hour and a half into the interview, so I want to not, well... I would rather spend more time on your book, but we have other things we have to cover. So I want to once again encourage the listeners to get this book. It's called Heaven Up Here by John K. Williams. It really is a very, very good read, and I appreciate it very much, and I consider myself lucky to have been able to read it. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for writing such a great book and taking the time to do that and doing it with such skill. You're really an accomplished writer, I think. And by the way, something else here, this is just sort of ancillary, which is that you thank in your forward, you thank the, um, oh, who is it? Tyler Leary for his stellar yeah. editing. Yeah. I went back and I circled that because I went back and I circled it because I got almost the way through your book and finally got all the way through. It was incredible editing. I did not find any typos or misspellings. There was only one thing that I had a question mark about, which we don't have to get into, but those things jump out at me. All right. I'm not a proof reader by trade, but I see those things. And I'm talking about in books that are done by professional publishers like Stephen King books, you know, and there'll be several things in there, maybe a handful of things in a uh, 600 page book. It's not a lot, but they jump out at me. Yours was immaculate. Yeah, I wish I could say I've gone through it and not found anything, but there are a few things, but not worth, you know, going in and redoing the whole thing. Um, but yeah, he did a phenomenal job. And, he, and just, you know, he's, he's a friend from the message boards and he, he volunteered to do it. And I really appreciate it because he did a phenomenal job. Well, okay. As long as we're on the subject, and I just want to ask you this question. Uh Page 79. Is there such a thing as folklore music? Yes. It's not yep. folk music? No, it's called musica folklorica. Okay, then forget it. I, I have no questions then. That was my only question mark about. I thought maybe you meant folk music because I'd never heard of folklore music. So I put a question mark next to it. All right. So it's immaculate as far as I can, am concerned with the editing. Well, the other thing people that people have questioned me about is, the spelling of carnival, which is uh, 
different from the spelling of the Brazilian carnival. Mm-hmm. So there, and I say, well, that's the way I spell it in Bolivia. Sorry. Yeah, it's about Bolivia. Good for you. All right, here we go. Here's this theme that I pick up on. Now, we are raised in a church that's very black and white. And the characters in the Book of Mormon and in church history tend to be painted in the same way. In the Book of Mormon, let's just talk about the Book of Mormon. You've either got good guys or you've got bad guys. And every now and then you'll have a good guy become a bad guy. And as I was thinking about this today, I thought, I'm not sure there are any bad guys who become, no, uh, good guys who become bad guys, right? But there are bad guys who become good guys. Right. However, there are no instances that I can think of off the top of my head where bad people are doing good things in the Book of Mormon or in church history, the way it's presented with the dominant narrative, or where good people are doing bad things. That's true. They don't cross over. So it's very black and white. It's very two-dimensional. It's very DC Comics, if I can make that uh, analogy. But, but in your book, it seems that you encounter over and over again instances where bad people are doing good things and good people are doing bad things. And without commenting on it directly, it seems like there's confusion that arises in your mind over this because this is not what you're expecting. Can I give you a couple of examples? Sure. Okay. I'm going to raise the, the, the issue and I'll let you tell the story. There was an American family that lived in Bolivia who would have the missionaries over to their house for some good home-cooked meals, right? Right. And then one evening uh, after dinner, they put a video of a movie onto the TV for the missionaries to watch. And you were somewhat surprised by their selection. What was it? Oh, if I remember right, it was like the best little whorehouse in Texas. Yep. Something like that. That's yeah. what it is. And you were surprised at that. Yeah, I was kind of horrified, actually. <laughs> yeah, because you're a missionary. You're horrified. And you absented yourself from watching it, but basically all the other missionaries watched it. Yeah, I remember like two or three of us that just went in a different room. But yeah, I was horrified. And But now I look at that and I just think what a dumb thing to be upset about. And because I, I don't consider it to be a bad thing, but I think, like you said, everything's so black and white that you think, how, how could somebody who, you know, is helping us missionaries, who's taking care of us do that? And yeah, I mean, I, I would, I'm still very much in contact with that family and they're wonderful people and I would never judge them. But yeah, I do think that it, it probably had a little cognitive dissonance there at that time. That's what I was picking up from the story. On the other side of it, there's also later on in your mission, there's the sister missionary who gets pregnant. Yeah. And she comes to the mission home because she's got to be sent home, right? Right. Now, if you've got guys, elders on the mission who are out there doing heaven knows what because they like dark meat is the way that this particular missionary put it. Yeah. In the book, right? He likes dark meat. He doesn't get sent home. But that's because if he's out fooling around, he doesn't get pregnant. Right. He, but, he doesn't admit to it. Right. But the sister missionary, sorry, it's kind of indisputable. You're pregnant. She's coming into the mission home. You're working at the mission home or you're there at the same time. She's there briefly while arrangements are being made for her to get flown home. Yeah. So she is, uh, she's Hester Prim. She's got the 
the red letter, the A, or maybe a P in this case for pregnant, on her, she has broken one of the cardinal rules, one of the sins next to murder in the Book of Mormon. So she is a fallen woman. She is a bad person now, right? At least from a Mormon's point of view. And yet, and yet at the mission home, she ends up being very, very kind and caring to you. Can you explain what it was she did? Well, I had I had injured my knee. Uh, that's a long story, but I I went to a, a doctor and they put a cast on my leg from the from the ankle up to the to the thigh, and but when the swelling went down in my knee, the cast was just on there loosely, and my leg was flopping around inside. And she said, "Oh, we've got to get that off," because she was a nurse, and so she. She helped me. She took the, the cast off, and then she told me what I needed to do and how to take care of the wound. And um, and the thing is, I I wouldn't have I didn't consider her a fallen woman per se. I mean, I I think the the general feeling from everybody, including me, was it's just really sad. You know, very sad that this had happened and that. Because she was, you know, clearly devastated, and and I felt so bad for her. But at the same time, in the middle of all that horrible situation, she took care of me, and and I, and I, just to me that that was one of the most Christ-like things I've ever seen in my life, where she put aside what was going on with her and took care of me, and it still chokes me up to think about it. Yeah, and did that cause you any kind of, I don't know if it was cognitive dissonance, but what I sense is a growing maturity in you that you're able to start experiencing times when bad people do good things, good people do bad things, people going through absolute hell in their own life are taking care of you like Jesus would take care of somebody else who is in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I <clears throat> Like I said, I was, I was really sad when she went home. Um, but I, it, it's just interesting to me, and it probably was a little jarring to me at the time that you know somebody who had was in that situation would would nevertheless focus outward and focus on me and take care of me, and you know it. I think that taught me a lesson about you know, not judging people, definitely. Because at the time, I didn't even really know what was going on with her. I just knew she was getting sent home, and I knew it had something to do with, you know, the law of chastity. And that's all I knew. I, I didn't know she was pregnant until later, um, <clears throat> but I knew that they that both of them had done something that they shouldn't have done, and uh, but. And the, her companion was just an absolute wreck, but um, but she just stoically took care of me, and you know meant a lot. All right. So the third instance I want to give, and there, these are just three of multiple instances where I sense this pattern coming up, has to do with a guy who was in Bolivia. He was a Bolivian, and almost certainly, though you don't know for sure, almost certainly a drug dealer. And he he helped you out. He helps you out. You're missionaries, right? He helps you out in the time when you were in some financial difficulty. Can you explain that story? 
Well, the, the way that you got your money there was that um, you would you had a checkbook and you would go to a a an exchange house and you'd write a check and they would give you dollars and then you would have to exchange your dollars on the street on the black market for pesos. And so we were this is my last area. We were out in way, like I said, maybe six hundred miles from the nearest missionaries up in the Amazon basin. <clears throat> and there was no place where we, I could cash my checks and we were running out of money. Somebody told us about this guy who lived outside of town and that he might be able to help us. And so we go out to this guy's place and I, I almost want to call it a compound, like a, a big house with a wall around it. But they let us in and he had you know, a couple of really nice cars, which was unusual. And <laughs> we go into his office and, he had stacks of, of dollars and stacks of pesos on his desk. So I wrote him a check for $300 plus. He, he said, well, I'll charge you seven bucks per hundred to cash it. So I wrote him a check for $321 and he gave me $300 American cash. And we left and we both thought, boy, I think that was a drug dealer. And, uh, but the interesting thing to me was that he never cashed that check. Right. And you and wondered so, if that he was doing that out of uh, sort of self-preservation. He didn't want to come to the attention of the authorities, but he never cashed the check is the bottom line, right? Right. And so I don't know if he was, I mean, he was very nice to us. And I don't know if he did that out of kindness. I, I don't think $300 was much to him than more than po uh, pocket change or something. But yeah, it, it, I thought either he just was being very kind or he didn't want a paper trail leading back to him. So yeah. who knows? But here we got another instance of a guy who's not a member of the church, a guy who's probably on the wrong side of the law, and yet he's totally helping you out for no reason other than apparently to help you out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was, you know, that's a theme throughout my entire mission that people from Lots of people who were not members, who weren't interested in being members, were just genuinely kind and considerate and took care of us. Um, we used to go to, uh, when I was the travel secretary, I, I dealt with uh, this one travel agency. And uh, the, the two women that ran the place, they were the nicest people and they went out of their way to take care of us. And and help us when we needed help. Uh, and, you know, to, I, maybe to my uh, discredit, I, it never occurred to me, maybe we should teach them the gospel. We, we didn't. But they ended up later, they joined the church because one of my successors did have that bright idea. But, <clears throat> but yeah, over and over and over, people were just kind to us. And, you know, I, like I said, people would yell profanities at us every day because we were Americans. But in our personal interactions with people, they, people were just kind more often than not. Um, and I, I love Bolivia. I love those people. They're just good, kind people. It, they, most Bolivians have next to nothing, but they will give you the shirt off their back. Yeah. All right. Before I leave your book, it's hard for me to leave your book. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I noticed. 
there's something else I've got to ask you about. And it's an incident, and it is so briefly talked about, barely mentioned in your book, but it happens while you're on the way from Utah out to Bolivia. There's a number of stops along the way, and one of the places you stop is in Caracas. Yeah. Going there and coming back. And you mention it, both going there and coming back. I'm just going to read what happens coming back because it's the same kind of thing, the same kind of thought that crosses your mind. This is page 251. And I hope you're ready for my question, okay? Because Uh what you say is, once again, we stopped in Caracas. And I remembered thinking again how easy it would be to just disappear. The first time you mentioned it, you talk about just fading into the jungle. But here you say how easy it would be to just disappear. But why would I want to do that? And then you go on. You never attempt to answer that question. What I'd like you to do now answer that question because you say it both times both times this thought occurs to you going there and coming back I could just fade away into the jungle and nobody would know about it they'd see I was missing but nobody would ever find me I could just disappear you ask but why would I want to do that can you answer that question now I think it goes back to what I said before about um, feeling like I was never good enough I, I remember especially on the way to Bolivia like I said, I, we were walking around the airport and we suddenly realized that there was nothing between us and the street. We could just walk outside, get in a cab and go. And I remember thinking for a second, wow, I could just, I could just vanish. And I, looking back on it, I think probably it was, I've got this, these uh, two years coming up where I'm going to be under a lot of pre- a pressure to um, to perform, and uh, you know, and, and I still, and I don't feel good enough. Maybe if I just walked out of the airport here and disappeared, maybe that I don't have to, I don't have to live up to anybody's expectations anymore. <clears throat> and I didn't do that. Obviously, I turned around, went back on the plane, but. Um, I think maybe it was in in the back of my mind, this would be the way out. This would be the way to avoid all of that. Right, just get that pressure off your shoulders. Yeah. And even coming home, I, I knew that I, you know, I, I was coming home. I was going to go back to college. I was presumably going to get married. And I knew that the that kind of pressure to, to uh, perform was not, was not going to end with my mission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I just walk away and, and that would be it. You have to endure to the end, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you one other question. <laughs> it's always one more question, right? Um, in your, uh, well, it's the very beginning of the book. It's called, um, oh, dedication is what it's called. You say this for Nancy, who I assume is your wife. Yes. Whom you may or may not have met on your mission. I did meet her on there. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to give you an out there. Yeah, you did meet her. Everything was on the up and up, though. But you did meet yes, her on your mission, and later on you ended up marrying her, and you talk about that at the end of your book. But you say for yeah. Nancy and for Bruce Drennan, Kevin Bonds, <coughs> Todd Wilson, Jeffrey Ball, and Ronald Eastland, who never came home to tell their stories. What do you mean by that? Okay, so... 
the first two names, Drennan and, and Bonds, they were, I mentioned in my book that we had, that two missionaries died from uh, a kerosene. Yes. A heater. That's those two. <laughs> yeah. And they, this is the kerosene heater because you're lighting up the kerosene <laughs> heaters to heat you. And unfortunately it can often give off, what is it? Carbon monoxide. Yeah. We give up. If you're, if you had it on too long, the room would fill with carbon dioxide and you would die in your sleep, carbon monoxide and you would die in your sleep. Which and that's what happened exactly, to them. That's what, exactly what happened. Which to them immediately about. made me think about the kerosene heaters that we used in Japan. We called them Seki stoves. Yeah, we were, we were not supposed to have any of those anymore. But my one companion and I, I don't know why we had one, but we did. And I was always terrified of it. So. Yeah, that, well, that, good reason. Because you're asleep, you don't know about it until you're dead. And then elders Wilson and Ball, they were the two missionaries that were murdered a couple of years after I went home from uh, Bolivia. And then Elder Eastland, I think it was in just within a few weeks of the murders that he was killed in a car accident in, in Bolivia. <clears throat> you know, there is this thing about uh, missionary work. And I can remember back to when I was a missionary. It wasn't that long ago. It was just 40 years ago. Yeah. 40 years ago, I was in Japan. And, uh, but there was this whole idea that when you're a missionary and you're on the Lord's errand, you're going to have this special kind of protection. Well, the protection that President Bishop was telling you about at the MTC, right? You have this right. special kind of protection. And there's even this, this sort of idea. Among members of the church, you're on an airplane, right? I'm kind of scared to fly. Uh, not quite debilitatingly so, but almost. And you get on an airplane and, oh, hey, there's some missionaries who get aboard the airplane. Well, now you can relax because the Lord is not going to let that plane go down if there's missionaries on it, right? Right. <laughs> you ever heard that idea? I actually have never heard that idea. So Yeah, if you're a missionary or if you got missionaries on your, your plane, you're good. And yet... There's this other side of the story, which is that missionaries are not protected. Right. And anything can happen to missionaries. And, you know, they, they, I, a few years ago, they were, they were talking about how um, the death rate among missionaries was much lower than the death rate for young men at, of that age in our country. And, and, I always thought that was a bit misleading because a lot of the, a lot of the deaths that happen to young men that are not missionaries are things like uh, shootings or, or doing something really stupid or, or like overdoses driving. And yeah. And you know, the, I, yeah, you're, you're not protected just because you're a missionary. And I, I mean, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say, that I can say in a blanket statement like that, but um, I always felt like we were only as protected as how stupid we were. You know, <laughs> if, we, if we put ourselves in a bad situation, we really couldn't expect to be protected from our own stupidity. And um, you know, I'm I'm grateful nothing happened to me seriously. It, couple of times it almost did but um you know my wife had rocks thrown at her but mm. um you know you you well and that was a, the weird thing about so those two missionaries that were murdered 
one of the things I heard was that, you know, oh, they must have been breaking the rules. No, they weren't. They were just coming home from a normal day of missionary work, put the key in the in the gate, and somebody opens a door in a car with an Uzi and shoots them. And you know, they didn't do anything wrong. They, but you know, that's that's sort of the idea that the only time you're not protected is if you're not following the rules, which is silly. Right. It becomes this retreat process where if you're a missionary, you're protected. Oh, something bad happens to a missionary. Well, it's not just be, a missionary is protected, but it's a missionary who's, who's following the rules is protected. And therefore, if a missionary gets killed, God forbid, if a missionary gets killed, then it must be because that missionary wasn't following the rules. It's the same kind of logic. And I'm going to put that in air quotes, right? It's the same kind of logic that you were talking about before, that if you keep the commandments, you'll be happy. Therefore, if I'm not happy, I must not be keeping the commandments. Yes. Which also leads to this whole aspect of we go to church and we pretend to be happy because that means we're righteous. We're keeping the commandments. We're happy, happy, happy all the time. And therefore, if you go there and you're not happy and you see everybody else who's pretending to be happy, what you end up thinking is you're the only one who's not happy. You're the only one who's falling short. And then you're isolated in addition to experiencing this, which only makes the situation worse. Right, right. If you can yeah. look at it objectively, what you would say is when you go to church, there's no way I can ever be as happy as everybody else is pretending to be. Yeah. You just reminded me of, uh, I was in Texas when a few years ago we lived in Texas and I was in the high priest group leadership and sitting next to the other counselor. And uh, we had a uh, early morning stake uh, leadership meeting or stake priesthood meeting. And uh, the stake president got up and said, I had prepared some, some remarks, but I'm not going to give them because I feel impressed that there's at least one person in this room who's struggling with pornography and masturbation. And the other counselor turns to me and goes, yeah, like half this room. (laughs) (laughs) That was an easy guess. Yeah. There's at least one person here who is having, has looked at pornography or has masturbated. (laughs) Or or is (laughs) left-handed. Yes, exactly. Uh, I just, I don't know. You just reminded me of that. that But I've seen that way too many times where it's like, I feel impressed to speak to somebody who's struggling with something and like, well, you're, you're speaking to hundreds of people. That's, there's enough of us. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing about it is, is that even if they were saying something absolutely crazy, like I feel impressed to speak that there's somebody here who has a pink unicorn hidden in their garage, right? (laughs) Nobody's going to know that there isn't anybody there who doesn't have a pink unicorn hidden in their garage because it's a huge group of people and you can't know everybody else. All you can say is, well, I'm glad he's not talking to me. I don't have a unicorn in my garage. It must be somebody else here. Yeah. You'd be sitting there. I wonder who has a pink unicorn in their garage. (laughs) You're looking around trying to, trying to figure it out. Yeah. Who's that horrible person? Okay. I was at the beginning of your book. Now the very end, now the very end, this is how you end the book. I'm going to read it now. I still have dreams, nightmares really, in which I'm somehow a missionary again. 
I know that time has passed and I have a life and a family. But in the dream, I have to put my life on hold again and go back to Bolivia and serve another mission. Never in the dreams do I think of how to get out of the mission. Instead, I have to tell myself over and over that I can do this. I can handle another mission. But I feel nothing but dread at the thought of going back. I always wake up relieved that it was just a dream. Yeah, I, I, I still have those dreams, which is crazy. You know, I, I, and, and I think, to, you know, in the dreams, I'm like, how did I get back here? You know, what happened to my career and my kids? And, you know, they're all still there, but how, how is this possible? And then I just think, okay, you can do it. And, and I've talked to a lot of people who've had those kinds of dreams. And I've never had anybody tell me that it was a good thing, that, that they that it was a pleasant dream going back and being a missionary again. Well, I had a dream too. I am not haunted by dreams because I went to Japan and not Bolivia. No, seriously. <laughs> it may have something to do with it. But no, I was surprised to find out that I wasn't the only person who had had this dream, that it's really a common phenomenon among return missionaries. And this is like a year or two, maybe three at the most, after I got back from Japan. It wasn't that long after. But all I know is that in my dream, I'm in an airplane and I'm headed back to Japan to continue my mission. I don't have a family. I don't have a career or anything. I'm probably in college, but I'm going back to Japan and I know I'm going back to Japan and I'm going to have to continue my mission. And all I remember is that my hands and my face are plastered up against the airplane window and I'm yelling, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I somebody told me that that's, that's kind of a common dream among people with post-traumatic stress, which uh, that, that makes sense to me that, you know, it, it, it is traumatic stress to go through what, what we did. I think that you're right. And I only had it the one time, so maybe mine wasn't as bad as yours. But honestly, this is still, I'm, I'm super active, I'm super believing, I'm super faithful, and I will be for a long time after this. And yet I had this dream. And I was kind of surprised about the dream, but maybe it was allowing me an avenue to experience emotions that I felt, but I did not feel allowed to express otherwise. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to leave this book now. There are other things that I had marked up, many other things, actually. There was also a passage in here where I had written PTSD question mark about something you said, but that's okay. We don't have to get there. Uh, I do want everybody to buy this book. Go to Amazon, get Heaven Up Here by John K. Williams. It is an excellent read. And by the way, this is how I want to conclude this part because I've shared this with you before, but when I was getting done reading this book, I was texting you. And the thing was about your book is that it brought back my mission to me. And through reading your experience, I was able to look at my experience new and fresh, but also with a kind of a different perspective. Because you know something? I will tell you that what we did 
was something big. It was something noble. It was something grand. And it was something that your book helped me to feel more appreciative of and proud of myself for having done that. Yeah. I mean, I, my dad asked me one time, do you regret serving mission? I said, absolutely not. You know, it, it was uh, one of the, I mean, it was the best experience of my life. It was also the worst, <laughs> you know, it was everything in between. And we used to have a saying on our mission, if this is the best two years of our lives, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm proud of what I did there. I, I have regrets. I'm sure you do, but I'm proud of what I did. And, and I'm grateful for the experience that it it uh, helped me become who I am as an adult. Very good. Well, we'll close that chapter. We've only been talking for two hours now. <laughs> well, you, you'll find out I talk too much, so sorry. No, no, no. It's not you. It's just you have so much to talk about. And by the way, we've been going for two hours, and I have resisted the temptation at almost every front to insert my experiences for my mission. So I'll save that for another time. I actually thought that there would be a lot of opportunity for me to do that, but that's okay because you're the guest. It's your book. And I want to focus on you right now. And we'll take as much time as we need to, to get all the great experiences out of you. Um, which leads us to, after you get back from your mission, you're still faithful. Yep. You're still believing. Yep. You end up getting a job with the church. Yep. Yeah, I was in grad school, and um, they had an internship at, as an editor in the in the church office building for grad students in English, which is what I was doing. <clears throat> so I I got this job for the summer, and uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, so then I finished my finished my master's degree and then I got a job as a technical writer for a software company and I was making next to nothing. I was, we were so poor mm-hmm. and, uh, and then the, the guy that the, my boss from the church called me one day and he said, well, uh, I don't know if you're interested, but we're hiring. We'd, we'd love to have you come back. And so I, I did. I went back to worked there as a curriculum editor for two years, and uh, and then I got tired of the commute and got a job closer to home. But it was an interesting two years, definitely. What did you do as a curriculum editor? So there were basically there were three kinds of editors up there. There was church education, so seminaries and institutes, um, <clears throat> church magazines. And then curriculum editors did everything else. So we, we were responsible for everything from uh, manuals, uh, handbooks, um, organ recital programs, brochure, the little brochures they give out at Temple Square about you know, points of interest in Salt Lake, anything like that. We, we did all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just basically whatever wasn't seminary re- related or magazine related, what came across our desks. And, and so tell us about some of the experiences you had. Well, I, I'll tell you about 
one of the one of the experiences that that, that uh, the last thing that happened to me there that was like the final nail in the coffin when I decided it was time to go. <clears throat> they were um, so back then they had six um, ironic priesthood manuals and six young women's manuals, and they uh, were replacing them with three, three each. And uh, so the normal procedure was we would get an electronic copy and then we would edit. And editing up there meant um, that you, you had really a lot of uh, leeway to do whatever you wanted to it. You know, if you wanted to rewrite a lesson because the lesson was no good, you could do it. <clears throat> and then you just had to get it approved by correlation. Mm-hmm. So I went through and edited this thing and it was, it was full of, you know, it was, it was, uh, it dated from like the 1970s mm-hmm. and there was all kinds of stuff in there uh, that was just weird. Like, um, <clears throat> like a quote from Boyd K. Packer saying that, um, that, uh, God gave us our sex drive because if we didn't have it, we wouldn't want to have families. And I thought, well, that's not right. So I, I went through and I, I edited and I rewrote and then I handed it back to the. Can you hang on a second, John? I really yeah. want to hear the story, but why is it you thought that was wrong? Because I remember hearing the same kind of sentiment, the idea that, you know, God gave men the sex drive because if they didn't have it, then they'd just be out sailing the seas and going on adventures for their entire life and never settling down and raising a family. Oh, I just, I thought it was ridiculous that, you know, it doesn't give men credit for, you know, wanting, wanting families. You know, I just thought that was a really strange way of, of approaching um, sex and it was a whole bunch of, there was a talk from Elder Packer that was widely quoted in that one lesson that, you know, it was, I think it was the little factory talk actually, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, I removed a lot of that stuff and I replaced it with, with more positive quotes, but I took a lot of, you know, I, I edited it and I figured that we should probably update the citation so that we weren't quoting people from 30 years ago mm-hmm. so when, what years are you doing this by the way this is 92 to 94 oh okay so maybe 20 or so years after this talk was given yeah okay yeah, so you know i went to my boss and i said i don't don't like this these quotes in here and he said no i agree with you so we we wrote i rewrote a lot of the manual and but, you know, most of it was still intact, and I'd edited it heavily. And so I, I submitted it back to the guys that had had come up with it in the first place, and they went ballistic. They said, uh, oh, no, no, no. We, we promised uh, President Monson that this would be, just be a reprint of the, the best lessons from the old manuals. And I said, well, you know, you could have told me that. And and they said, well, we told them that because we we they wanted us to save money, and uh, so I uh, I said, well, I didn't know that, and now the money, any money savings, are lost because I've already spent a month on this. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, 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 you have to put it back exactly the way it was. So, what's the purpose of your review anyway? 
Yeah. And so I said, well, I went to my boss. I said, I'm not putting it back the way it was. And I'll put a lot of it back, but the most egregiously weird stuff, I'm not. And, uh, and so uh, I, I put it all back. And, and then... Uh, Even the egregiously and, weird stuff or not that? No, not, not the weird stuff. Okay. But, um, but then the funny thing is they submitted this lesson about um, that God has his own writing style. And that if you, uh, if you become familiar with the scriptures, you can recognize God's writing style. And I said, that, that's just absurd. <laughs> <laughs> what style is that? And so I took it to my boss and he goes, oh, that. He said, those two guys have been trying to get this published for years. And they keep, they keep getting um, rejected. And so they keep trying to insert it into, into uh, everything they write. So, uh. so I said, well, I'm not putting it in here. So he said, well, just write a generic a generic lesson on scripture study. So I did. And then when they saw what I'd done, that's the only time I have ever been screened at. What? And they were so angry with me and just yelled and yelled and yelled. So I, <clears throat> their boss refused to back me up, even though he had, he had agreed with me. So we had some kind of lame compromise and I don't remember. And <clears throat> anyway, so the thing, so the thing goes to correlation, and you know every document that gets produced by the church has to be approved by the correlation committee. They mm -hmm. review it, and then they send you back a report. And the report I got on that book was fifty-two pages long. <laughs> how, because, how long because, is the book? Oh, you know, it was just a manual, maybe maybe 150 pages. Yeah. Okay. And, but it was loaded with changes because I'd put all this old outdated stuff in there. And, um, <laughs> anyways, when, uh, when that report came back, they, they said, Oh, well, it's your fault because you didn't do what we wanted you to do. You didn't put it back the way it was supposed to be. And, I said, uh, I had been recruited by a company in Provo, and I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to take that job. But, and so I, I wrote about that on my blog, Why the Ironic Priesthood Manuals Suck. <laughs> by the way, is your blog still up? I mean, it still is, but I haven't, I haven't written anything in it in a few years. What's the name so, of your blog in case anybody it, wants to go and look at it? Rune2.com. WordPress.com. Okay, now Runtu, R-U-N-T-U. Yes. Runtu, WordPress.com? Runtu.wordpress.com. Okay, Runtu.wordpress.com. Runtu is a word that comes up in your book. I'm not going to go back to it, but it's a word uh, in Bolivian, correct? It's in Quechua, yeah. Uh, what does that mean? Is that the it's language that they speak there? One of the native languages there. Yeah. Okay, what does it mean? It means egg. And that's what they called us because there were two of us. We were white. <laughs> and it, it means, it's slang for testicle. Um, and that's what they called the missionaries. We'd go down the street and they'd call us runtus. 
And that was a derogatory term, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't call somebody a testicle out of kindness. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's not only that you have balls, you are balls. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So Rune 2 is why. And that's the name you posted under as well. Yeah. And when I say and, that, I mean on the message boards. Yeah, and the reason I did that is I figured that if anybody, if I ever came across anybody who had been in Bolivia, they would instantly recognize that. And, yes. and that many times. <clears throat> okay, so... Uh, this is such an interesting insight to me into the um, the manual. By the way, you said that you were not doing manuals, but at the end there, you are doing a manual. Is that right? No, I, I was doing manuals the whole. We did everything except except seminary manuals and magazines. Okay, so, so I, this is a church manual for young women and young men. It's a manual, yeah. Oh, okay. So you were involved in some very important projects then. Yeah, we did... I did a lot of interesting stuff there. That was just the one that was sort of the the last straw for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I should say I enjoyed working there. And the main reason I quit working there was that I, it was, <clears throat> it required a very limited set of skills, just editing. And I thought if I'm, <clears throat> if I don't plan on staying here the rest of my career, it's really going to limit my potential and, yeah. I was there two years and then I left. Another mission. Another mission, yeah. Well, two years. That, you know, what's funny is that <clears throat> when, I, when I quit, I had people come in and say, you can't quit. You can't quit working here. This is a, this is a calling. And I said, no, it's a job. <laughs> and, yeah, it, it's an interesting place to work because I, I met – it's kind of a microcosm of the whole church in that <clears throat> there's all kinds of people working there. People who are just, you know, absolute fanatical Mormons or, you know, what you might call just your normal Orthodox Mormons, all the way to people who don't believe in the church at all. Mm. And, and uh, it just, you know, people won't tell you that up front, but occasionally you'll have somebody that will open up and say, you know, they're just... It's just a job. <clears throat> and that happened to you? Oh, yeah. I know people up there that don't. I, uh, I, I won't say much more about it. I know some people that, you know, according to the church standards, are not particularly good members of the church that work up there. Really? Well, John, you may know that the Strengthening Church Members Committee monitors this program on a regular basis. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be very happy if you would mention some of the names of these people. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, <clears throat> I do have a friend who works up there. He is a believer. He's a nice guy and <clears throat> good guy. But he called me one time. He said, I just got out of a meeting where they were um, discussing uh, online uh, websites and blogs and things that might be of concern to the church. And he said they had it on a big uh, you know, screen. They were bringing them up, and he said, "And your blog came up. Your and, your blog came up. Yeah, yeah, mine." And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Yeah, we we discussed it for a few minutes, and they decided that you weren't, you know, you weren't a threat or anything, and you weren't particularly anti-church." And then we moved on. But I just thought it was funny that it even got the notice of the church. 
to me. It was just a stupid little blog. Wow. They're really, really monitoring things, aren't they? Apparently, or at least they were. This is probably eight or 10 years ago. Believe me, they're monitoring more. Their budget has increased because there's a lot more to monitor. Yeah, that, that wouldn't surprise me. So after that, but when you left that job, all right, you quit your calling of a crappy paying job where they have all this stuff going on. Their people are getting paid to apparently just do a lot of self-defeating effort and not really get anything accomplished, but spending a lot of time not accomplishing anything. At least that's what I'm hearing from that experience you had. Well, that that experience fortunately was not the norm. And people used to say, ask me, doesn't, doesn't working for the church, um, doesn't that uh, hurt your testimony? And I would say no, because considering all the crap that we have to put up with, that we get anything out that's any good is, is almost a, mir- a miracle. Yeah. And, you know, it, it didn't. It, it had nothing to do with, with my testimony. And all of that happened much later. But I will tell you, that does give an insight into how these manuals are produced, which explains to me why it is that the manuals, the lessons in them, have all the character of plain yogurt. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've met people over the years who think that every, every church manual is, like, uh, personally reviewed and blessed by an apostle or a president of the church, and it's just not true. You know, they... They, uh, my experience was they only got involved if there was um, something, if something came up that, that might be of concern that someone told them about. But other than that, it's, it's, it's a bureaucracy and you know, they, they tell you what, what they want in a manual or in a publication. You do your best to give them what they want and you publish it and that, that's that. Yeah, it seems to me that a large amount of the responsibility for this, the apostles have farmed out to the correlation committee. Absolutely. <clears throat> no, I'll tell you another exercise in futility that happened there though. Yeah. So they, they have these little guidebooks <clears throat> that are, they're designed for people who are living in areas where there's not enough people to hold church meetings. Mm-hmm. So it, if you need to home, uh, hold a church meeting in your home with just your family, there are these little guidebooks that teach you, that tell you what to do. And so one of them was called the branch guidebook. And uh, it was, here's, you know, here are the basics for um, holding Sunday meetings and, you know, other things that you do and to be a functioning branch, even if you're just your family. And, uh, so they they had gotten input my boss had was working on it he got input from primary young men young women the Melchizedek priesthood people I mean pretty much every organization had input into this thing and then it went to a general authority for review and he I'll, I'll never forget this he'd scrawled across the front of the manuscript with red pen no, <laughs> he said, we don't want this. We, we don't want to prescribe some kind of Wasatch front uh, church to these people. We should just give them bare, bare minimum guidelines 
and and let them decide what they want to do. And he said specifically, I don't want this, I don't want this to be longer than 12 pages. And and I want you to leave all the illustrations in. And so uh, we just and my boss said, I can't, I can't handle this. You do it. So I mean, I I cut the crap out of this thing. And it it was useless. But when it when it went back to this guy, and I won't say who it was, he said, now that's exactly what I was looking for. Mm. So they pub they published this thing and it's absolutely useless. <laughs> and they and they they start getting letters from people out in these little places saying, you know, it says here we have to have primary, but we don't know how to do primary. Mm-hmm. And so they they had to print up these little uh these these letters that were basically the parts we had removed were uh if somebody wrote in and said how do i do young men's we'd have we'd send them a reply that was the page original pages on the young men and so it it was this useless document that uh we ended up <laughs> having to cover cover for it anyway so yeah it was it was ridiculous oh my goodness well yeah i can see why he would want to do it the first way but then i can also see the problems that that engendered because people who don't know how to run the church are looking at this and saying this doesn't tell me how to run the program i need to know more and that's what he cut out in the beginning in an effort to make it um what more accessible or not so utah mormon oriented being dictated yeah. to these people. And they say, we need to know what it is that we, we're going to do. We need to be dictated yeah. to in this. I mean, it was so bad. It was like the section on primary was like, this is a one hour meeting on Sunday for children between the ages of three and 12. And that was pretty much it. That's it. So what do we do yeah. during that time period? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Can I tell you a story um, and get your take on this? Because Daniel Peterson, whom I've gone around and around with a bit, but he tells this story, and it's a wonderful story, uh, about when he was involved in writing some of the lessons for the, um, it was the New Testament teacher's manual to be used in the gospel doctrine class in church. And it had to do in Acts, where uh, Paul is teaching, and there's this kid who's up in the window listening. I think his name is Eutychus, but don't quote me on it. Right. And uh, Paul preaches like all night long and Eutychus goes to sleep and he falls out of the window. He falls down on the the ground. I guess the window's up on a second floor or something. Hits the ground and and he dies. And so Mm -hmm. people come out there and Paul administers to him and he's brought back to life. It's a wonderful story. But this is the story that's in the lesson that Daniel Peterson is supposed to be writing. And he figures, I'm going to have some fun with this. And (laughs) and And you know the bland questions. Uh, that come yeah. after every lesson, right? So he talks about, he says, uh, when you think about the story about Eutychus, um, have you ever heard a boring talk in church? <laughs> have you ever been so bored in church that you wanted to die? Or something like that. You know, he's just being funny, right? And it is funny. He has a great sense of humor. And uh, and he submits it, right, to the correlation committee because he figures they're going to kick, they're going to get a kick out of it too, <laughs> hopefully. But they don't, and he doesn't hear anything back from them. 
And all of a sudden, he's aware that this this manual is on the verge of going to publication with these questions he wrote in there just as a joke for the committee. And he has to contact them and say, wait, stop the presses. You don't want this going out. It's got these questions in here. So sometimes I wonder how closely the correlation committee reviews this stuff as well. Well, that's a good question. Like, like I said, I got a 52-page report that said they they went through mine pretty pretty thoroughly. Um, but yeah, maybe, I, I maybe guess, they trusted Daniel Peterson more than they trusted you. Oh, I, I can guarantee you that. Yeah. I, I, I've known Dan Peterson for many, many years. Yeah. He does have a great sense of humor. Oh, uh, well, so let's go now. Let's segue to the last part of our discussion tonight. And we maybe got, I don't know, half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, but I want to talk with you about how it is that you went from being a faithful, believing, orthodox member of the church to where you are today, who goes to church, is still a member of the church, at least in name and in attendance uh, when church is open. By the way, this is being recorded on December 4th, 2020. We're still suffering from the COVID crisis and the closure of many places, including churches. But you're not a believing Mormon anymore, are you? My battery's dying. I had to plug it in. So, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I did. Uh, I went through probably the same experience that you did, and uh, I don't know. Just I, I gradually went from, um, like I said, realizing that the other side had had something reasonable to say, and to realizing that. Uh, I couldn't defend some of the stuff that I was defending. What specifically was it that you were defending that you realized you couldn't defend anymore? Well, hold on one second. Um, That's okay. I'll keep talking right now. When we started this interview this morning, we were going to do it over computer. I am at my computer and you had gone to your computer and there was some problem that you were having with it. And so instead of doing that, you switch to your phone. And we've been doing this interview from the very beginning over your phone. And so now, uh, a couple of minutes ago, you said that um, you're... Phone you're, disconnected. Uh-oh. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. Okay, great. Your phone's disconnected. What are you on now? I'm in my car. <laughs> you're in your car. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You were really suffering for this interview. I appreciate it. Um, so... What I'd asked you, though, was about those things that you realized you couldn't defend anymore. What are some, for instances, of those? Well, I'll tell you. I, I mean, I know exactly when it ha- when exactly it happened. I was uh, so I have a friend who works for the church, and you know we we've been, done everything together our whole lives, and uh, you know we're, we were in the MTC at the same time, been best friends since we were five years old. And he went started working for the church, and uh, he called me one day and he said, "John, there's uh, I went out to lunch with these guys, and they they were telling me all this stuff about Joseph Smith, and it's really bothering me." And I said, well, "Like what?" And he said, "Well, they told me that that he uh, he had like forty wives, and that some of them some of the wives were married to somebody else at the same time." He said, that's not true, is it? And I said, yeah, that's true. 
And then he said, uh, and then he had, he married like teenage girls. He said, that's not true, is it? And I said, yeah, that's true too. And he said, and then he told people that if, if uh, they gave him their daughter, that he would, could guarantee their, their spot in the celestial kingdom. He said, that's not true, is it? And I said, yeah, that's true too. And he said, John, the church is still true, isn't it? And I had that sort of light bulb go on in my brain that said, you know, if this was anybody other than Joseph Smith, you wouldn't even attempt to defend this. And and it's like all of a sudden, all of the things that I had rationalized over the years, like um, I was a Latin American studies major, and you know, this I had a professor that told me that anybody who says there's evidence for the Book of Mormon in Mesoamerica is lying, mm-hmm. and and I mean, I it's it's obvious to me that that's it's not you know the the apologetics that they do are. are Silly, and I and then I thought about Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, I I realized that that I was just rationalizing a lot of stuff, but the stuff about Joseph Smith and the Nauvoo polygamy and polyandry was stuff that I think had bothered me for years, but I'd rationalized it. But when my friend brought it up i couldn't and he said well john the church is still true isn't it and i said you know you're gonna have to answer that question for yourself and he was shocked because i was always the one that took everything in the church seriously and he was the one who would just kind of go with the flow yeah and uh but i uh, so I went home that day, and my wife said, something's wrong, isn't it? And I said, yeah, I don't think I believe in the church anymore. Mm. And, I mean, I, it's the wrong way to to approach it with her. I just blurted it out. <laughs> and But, you know, I, I really did try to make it work. But, it's you know, you just can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube once it's out. No, you can't unring the bell. Right. And... And so I, yeah, I, it was, I went through a couple of years of just absolute misery. I was really unhappy because, you know, I was really struggling with things and I, I didn't have anybody to talk to and my family was all opposed to what I was doing and it was hard. And, and I will say I, I made a lot of mistakes in, I used to say I'm, I'm an expert ex-Mormon in that I know exactly what not to do. Because you did it all. Because I did it all. And, you know, <laughs> I damaged some relationships, some some permanently, um, but I I survived that. I got through it, and and you know it's funny that after all this time, I just I don't have I don't have strong feelings one way or the other. I mean, occasionally, I when something happens like that uh um when they they uh that policy changed with the i knew you were going to say that yeah i mean that really really bothered me and november of 2015 uh, yeah yeah that really policy i'm sorry i'm sure everybody knows except for one and for that one i'll say it's the policy of exclusion yeah 
yeah, excluding gay couples and their kids. And it really, really hit me hard. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, I think I'm just, I understand now that it's, it's a, a man-made organization and people, by and large, I think they're doing the best they can with what they have. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the reason that shocked me so much was that I thought I couldn't believe that the entire leadership of the church would be on board with that. That's just unbelievable. But, um, but other than that, I just don't, I don't have, I don't have strong feelings about it anymore. I just, in fact, I, I had, I said that to somebody once who was a believer who got mad at me because he said I was, uh, minimizing his faith. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm just minimizing my emotional c- connection to it. That's all. Hmm. Interesting. I'm glad that you're where you are, you're at. I think that is healthy. And it is interesting, this idea that many members of the church, including myself once upon a time, used to have that anything negative about the church, even if it's just your own personal opinion or how you're dealing with it in your life, becomes in some ways a personal attack on them. Yeah. Oh, I'm. Well, it's, it goes back to what I was saying earlier that it's it becomes part of your identity, and so when somebody says something negative or or critical, it doesn't even have to be negative. <clears throat> it it feels like it's an attack on your identity, on on you personally, and it it isn't. I mean, it doesn't it can be? I suppose, but um, yeah. I I guess I just don't have that. I don't feel wedded to it emotionally anymore. And so I may, I may used to, I went through a period where when I would go to church, I would just sit there and grind my teeth and roll my eyes. And now I just, I go and I, and I try and get something good out of it. And, and I was telling my wife, I said, I think I, I pay more attention to what's going on in the at the pulpit than most people in the chapel are, are doing. <laughs> well, I certainly pay more attention to General Conference now. I can tell you that much. Yeah, I, I I didn't watch General Conference this last time. I just wasn't up to it. You were so lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your comments and your story about um, your friend and and. Uh, that turning point for you makes me think of a number of things. First off, it's interesting. What can constitute the turning point? Often it's a small thing, but it ends up having major implications in a person's life. There's this one person who was posting about this change that she experienced and it happened. I think she was probably in college and talking to a friend or a roommate of hers who was a non-member. And she was just talking about Mormonism, like all good Mormons are supposed to do to their non-Mormon friends. Right. And she's talking about the gold plates and, and Joseph Smith translating the book of Mormon and everything. And the roommate, the non-member roommate says, Oh, well, where are the gold plates now? And of course, the the Mormon girl says, well, the angel took them with him. And the response from the non-Mormon was just, oh, she rolled her eyes a little bit and said, of course he did. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, because that'd be a natural reaction to that story, right? Yeah. But all of a sudden, this Mormon girl who's telling her the story, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, you know, like I said, I was, I was a Latin American studies major and I had to study 
you know, Mesoamerica. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, mm-hmm. but I had a few classes in it. And I read this stuff from these guys talking about how, you know, situating the Book of Mormon in the Mayan uh, uh, homeland, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to myself that the big picture is that the culture described in the Book of Mormon looks nothing like the actual material culture down there. And the way I've always described it is that, you know, um, <clears throat> there's the, the painter Gauguin who painted with dots. He call, it's called pointillism. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So every painting that Gauguin did is a is comprised of thousands of dots. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and at the same time, if you if you're looking up, if you get a far side comic in the newspaper, yeah. it also is made up of dots. Or any photograph in a newspaper, yeah, right. And so, what the apologists are doing is they're looking at the far side comic and saying, "Well, look, this dot here is roughly the same color as this dot in Gauguin." Mm-hmm. And almost in the same place. And look, here's another one that is sort of the same color. And, and <clears throat> ergo, this far side comic is Gauguin. Except when you when you zoom out, it's not. It's the far side. And that's exactly what what's going on with uh, with apologetics in Mesoamerica. Is that you might find some tiny little. Uh, points of convergence mm-hmm. but when you back up and look at it holistically it looks nothing like mesoamerica it's just it's not the same thing it's not you know i think the reason they they picked mesoamerica as the place to focus on is it's the it's the place that has the fewest problems right but it's still got a ton of problems it just is it's a terrible match right the and, different problems and you know, like I don't have you. You know Michael Coe, right? The, the, I know of him. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just here's a guy who spent his whole life studying Mesoamerica, who is just very blunt about how it's just not a good fit for the Book of Mormon, and it's obvious to anybody who's studied that. But the way that that guy's been vilified by some apologists is just ridiculous, you know. It, Right. And you would think you would think that a person who is an expert in Mesoamerica, like Michael Coe was, he, he since passed away. You probably knew that. Oh, yeah. And by the way, as a plug for uh, Mormon stories and John DeLynn, who needs no plug for me, he has an excellent series of interviews with Michael Coe for maybe 10 or so years ago. You can look those up and actually listen to the interview. It's great. So Michael Coe knows Mesoamerica like nobody else knows Mesoamerica. He also has a passing familiarity with the Book of Mormon. And what you would think is, is that the more a person, if, let me back up, if, if the Mayan uh, civilization is in some ways uh, coextensive with, because, you know, the apologists don't want to say that the uh, the Nephites are the Mayans, but they are right around there in the same place at the same time. But if it's coextensive with the Nephites, then you would think that if that's true, the more one learns about the Mayan civilization, the more one will see the connection and that it's the same kind of civilization as described in the Book of Mormon. And the more likely one is to think the Book of Mormon is 
more and more amazing because it's more and more accurate. That would make sense, right? Right, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> no, it's not. And actually, the, the people who know the most about it who don't have already skin in the game or this predisposition to believe because they're already members, they end up seeing that it's completely different. The more they study Mesoamerica, the more different they see it as being than the, what is presented in the Book of Mormon. Right, right. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. So uh, you and I were talking the other day about somebody we both know who who thought he had cracked the code of the uh, Book of Abraham. And I was noticing in, in those... Um, in the articles I was reading about the book of Abraham, they were citing this one guy, and I won't use his name, um, but this one professor who was considered the um, foremost scholar of Abrahamic pseudepigrapha, so Abrahamic lore, if you want to put it is that this, way. Is this a Mormon or non-Mormon professor? He's non-Mormon. Okay. Now, and, uh, and he'd actually written about, he'd actually written an article about something in the Book of Mormon that I can't remember, but it was a non-Mormon guy and very widely respected and widely quoted among, among um, Mormon apologists. So <clears throat> I thought, I wonder if he's ever read the Book of Abraham. <clears throat> so I, I, got, I, I made a copy of the text of the Book of Abraham, and I took everything out that would identify it as where it came from, just this is this, and I wrote him. I said, "This is the text of a purported manuscript, a hologram of uh, that written by Abraham." And I was just wondering if you thought that this was in line with, you know, what what we would expect from something like that. And uh, <clears throat> he wrote me back, and he said, "Well, it looks like a a late Protestant production, <laughs> probably <laughs> <clears throat> probably American." Yeah. And I said, yeah. And then he said, well, where did you get it? And I, so I told him and he says, well, you can share my opinion. He said, but don't use my name because I don't want to burn any bridges with my Mormon friends. Really? And, yeah. And, and I thought that was, so of course I did that. I shared what I quoted him exactly. And I was told by numerous people, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. And you can't give his name. No, I couldn't. So, so, so you're the one who knows that he's this worldwide uh, recognized expert on Abrahamic literature. Right, right. And so there were two things that, that either people said, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about or you're making this up. <laughs> right. You made it up and you're pretending that he actually wrote this to you. Right. So <laughs> anyways, I, I, I've always... I've always thought, I wish I could have shared his name, but I, I said it wouldn't. So. so what institution is he a professor at? Oh, I can't remember. Somewhere in the Ivy League, I think. Ah, uh, okay. How long ago was this? Oh, this is uh, years ago, probably eight or ten years ago. About the time when it, whenever that was going on with the, uh, remember the... Uh, yeah, Will Shriver. Right, right, right. I used to think it was Will Shriver, and I think everybody calls him Will Shriver, but then I'm talking to a guy who knows him, and he said, Will Shriver, and I said, what? He says, I yeah, he pronounces it Shriver. Yeah, he had the key, the, the huge key to unlocking the authenticity of the Book of Abraham, that it would finally be proven true. Yeah, that's, 
Yeah. <laughs> but I think he lost the key. But maybe if he prays hard enough, God will help him find his keys. Well, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't want to go down that hole. <laughs> yeah, and it's a deep hole, and it's very, yeah. very dark, dank, and even moist. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we won't talk about that either. We've got these inside jokes going on between us that only you and I know about and a small handful of people. But yeah. um, uh, so let me go ahead and um, let's start to close out this uh, this podcast. I certainly don't want you to bear your testimony, but uh, is there anything else that you can say, any incidents or events or experiences you've had that you would like to share before we conclude? Um, you know, I've... Other than I, I don't want people to think that, uh, you know, that I've had some kind of horrible negative experience in the church because I haven't. And it, it is part of who I am. It's, you know, I learned so much um, and about myself and about life. And, and I'll always be grateful for that. I'm, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't have any, bitterness or anger it's just it's gone and uh i i you know i have family members in the church and i respect what they believe they respect what i believe and it's it's all good so you know i i just uh you know i i once uh somebody told me that the reason he stayed in the church was that on balance he thought it was a, a force for good in the world and, you know, I do think it does a lot of good in the world. And I think it does a lot of things that are not good. But, you know, I, I am, I'm grateful that I went through all of this. Um, I, don't, I don't regret any of it. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us today, John Williams. The book is Heaven Up Here by John K. Williams. Please order a copy at Amazon. And while you've got your wallet out, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make a donation today. Uh, if you could make it a continuing monthly donation, all we're asking for is $10 a month. Hopefully you can afford that. And you will help Radio Free Mormon continue broadcasting behind enemy lines. Thank you once again, John Williams, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.